Welcome to the Charter Cities Podcast. I'm Curtis Lockhart. On each episode, we invite a leading expert to discuss key trends in global development and the world of cities, including the role charter cities and innovative governance will play in humanity's new urban age. For more information, please follow us on social media or visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Hi, I'm Thibaut Soleil, the Director of Research of the Adrianople Group. Today, you're listening to a special edition of the Charter Cities podcast about the Charter Cities Atlas, a collaboration between the Adrianople Group and the Charter Cities Institute. Today, we'll be talking about decentralization in the Renaissance and how a whole bunch of competing city-states built the modern world. Today, I'm talking to Corey Tazara. He is a professor of history at Scripps College in Clermont, California. He is the world's leading expert on medieval and early modern freeports and specializes in Renaissance history. His other big area of research is the spread of Christianity in the Far East. He got his PhD from Stanford University in 2011, and notable publications include The Freeport of Livorno and the Transformation of the Mediterranean World, Florence and the Medici, Tuscan Enlightenment, the masterpiece of the Medici, Commerce, Politics, and the Making of the Free Port of Livorno, Port of Trade or Commodity Market, Livorno and Cross-Cultural Trade in the Early Modern Mediterranean, and other publications about how governments attempted to regulate trade during the Renaissance. There was a time when the Roman Empire had conquered all of the known world, everything from Scotland to Iraq, from Morocco to Ukraine was all unified under a single unitary state. And yet, in a couple of short centuries, the Roman Empire was no more. In the wake of the Roman Empire, Europe became increasingly decentralized, and this decentralization gave way to great prosperity. Studies of calories that peasants may have eaten, based off of the bodies that have been found in graveyards, suggest that in most regions of Europe, Nutrition increased, food increased, and it is in the decentralized world of the Middle Ages that the modern world, the Renaissance, was born. You see endless History Channel documentaries, endless books, endless YouTube videos, endless podcasts, all talking about how much of the modern world we owe to Rome. But in between us and the Roman Empire comes the world of the Middle Ages, And it is at the end of the Middle Ages, during a period now known as the Renaissance, that the modern world was born. Historians are more and more arguing that, in fact, we owe much of our modern heritage to the Middle Ages. And to the degree that we owe anything to the Roman Empire, it is all that has been transferred to us through the filter of the Middle Ages that we have left of it today. And so today we will be talking with Cory Tazara about how the Renaissance created the modern world and how the Renaissance was this time of intense decentralization and intense competition. Our story starts in the year 800 AD. A Germanic warlord, Charlemagne, Charles Magnus, Charles the Great, has re-centralized a large territory. For the first time since the fall of the Roman Empire, a good chunk of Europe that includes parts of modern-day Spain, France, the part of Western Germany, and Northern Italy, have all been unified under a single government. Charlemagne goes to the city of Rome and, hoping to revive the glories of the ancient empire, has the Pope crown him as the Western Roman Emperor, as the Holy Roman Emperor. 
This is where our podcast begins. So to summarize with Charlemagne, Charlemagne has this alliance with the papal state. He is eventually, once he, he liberates the papal state from the threat of these Lombards, who are these Germanic invaders. What happens afterwards is that the papal state crowns him as Roman emperor. And as you very amusingly point out, this Roman empire by later historians like Voltaire, they comment that it's neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. But what you also point out is that a lot of the people at the time would have had no concept that the Roman empire had ever fallen. And to give a few examples of this, Dante, you know, writing in, you know, a few hundred years later, 500 years later in the 1300s in uh, the Divine Comedy is just writing about you know, the current Holy Roman emperors as if they were just like the direct continuation of Julius Caesar and <laughs> Augustus and Constantine and all of these folks. And what's really amusing is that if you look at a lot of the accounts of the of the Crusades, um, I think it's uh, it's uh, it's Jean de Villehardouin, who's a who's a guy who goes along with the Crusades and writes a lot of stuff down. What, what they're talking about the Frederick the First Barbarossa, who is the Holy Roman Emperor, who has basically spent his whole life in Germany, who is kind of the the successor to Charlemagne, and they're just writing about him as if he is the direct descender of the Roman Empire. So although de facto, as we're about to get into, the Roman Empire, it completely no longer exists and everything is decentralized. People have no concept that the Roman Empire has disappeared. And people have people living in Italy at this time, from their perspective, there was this like momentary interruption where, yeah, there was the Goths and the Lombards, but now the Roman emperors are back. We have Charlemagne. And moving forward in the centuries after Charlemagne, it's less that the Roman Empire collapsed and now there's something else. It's more like there was this momentary interruption when in reality, with the benefit of hindsight, we can see sort of the, the broader trend that the Roman Empire disappeared. Is that is that sort of how you'd characterize the presence of the Roman Empire in Italy in like the 800s and 900s AD? Yeah, I would I would say um, I would say that that's right. And the one other thing I would add that that makes this cre- I mean, what seems to us so incredible, I think what part of what makes this credible to to people in the Middle Ages is just the the omnipresence of the the Gospels and what you know the New Testament. And so they're reading in the New Testament of this empire that is portrayed as effectively eternal, um, as the last of the empires. So in a way. Uh, the Empire of Rome couldn't fall because if it did, it would be it would be the end of the world. It would be the apocalypse. And so I think that that kind of mental framework also kind of made this a, a somewhat more believable scenario for, for people in the Middle Ages. So without getting too caught up in the details of the, the geopolitics, which can get quite tedious, what would life be like for somebody observing the government from a very like on the ground perspective in say 950 in Italy? They think that the Roman Empire, in their minds, there's still some concept that the Roman Empire is here because the world hasn't, the, the end of times isn't here yet. But what's going on on the ground? Yeah, I mean, on the ground, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> for one thing, our knowledge of the sources are, are a lot less vivid for this period in Italy and a lot more monastic come out and come, coming out of the monasteries than is going to be true uh, even a century later. But, you know, my sense is that this is going to, this is going to look very much like a kind of caricature of, of feudalism, especially in the countryside. You know, if you're in the countryside and working, you know, life as a peasant, I, I think it's, it's not that there's, there's not that going to be a huge, there's not going to be a huge government footprint on the ground to put it, to put it bluntly. Instead, it's going to be 
uh, a world of basically personal relationships, of personal obligations and, um, you know, rights. And it's also going to be a world, you know, we, we don't, with, with cities, we have a very weak sense of what the trading re- world at this period looks like. The most importantly traded commodity, and I put air quotes around commodities, probably people in this world, slaves going um, to, you know, across Europe, but getting sent from Italy in, into, um, you know, to feed this kind of um, growing Islamic empire. So on the one hand, we have this, this, this under-commercialized world, I guess we would say, in the cities. At the same time, in the countryside, we, we have what is basically a feudal, a feudal kind of world. And the Roman Empire, such as it is, I mean, this is something that people are hearing about primarily, I think, in sermons, you know, in the, in a, in a um, you know, at church. What is going to church? You know, what, what does that look like? On, it's, it's hard to say. The sermons that survived from this period are all in Latin. Um, and are kind of like models rather than actual sermons that were delivered, right? They would have been delivered in, in the local vernacular. Um, so there was preaching going on, but this is, it, it's, it's a world that I, I personally don't have that much of a sense of, partly because I think the sources are not so great. So there's a few things though, although I think the sources aren't that great that historians say, maybe they're imagining, maybe it's real, but this is a world where Charlemagne is, called himself the emperor, and then he's disappeared, and he's fighting random civil wars against other sort of warlords for a few hundred years. And some of these warlords stop using the title of emperor. Some of them come back to Italy. Otto I in the 900s comes back to Italy and once again adopts the title of Roman emperor. But that's not too important because that's very far. There's this great Chinese saying that says, the heavens are high, but the and the emperor is far away, or the mountains are high and the emperor <laughs> is far away. And I think it applies just as well to Italy in the 800s and the 900s, as well as it does to uh, ancient China. So what's happening is that, yeah, they're hearing about the Roman Empire in sermons. There's this concept that, you know, everybody's vaguely aware that there's this emperor. Sometimes the geopolitics which are fairly complicated. There's these warlords who will start calling themselves Roman emperors, and the people are just kind of going along to get along. And the event that will really get people to start realizing, wait a minute, maybe the Roman Empire doesn't exist anymore, is that over time, these city-states will start emerging, where although they're nominally controlled by this holy Roman emperor who's neither holy nor Roman nor an empire, they're de facto starting to get charters that grant them more and more independence. So Genoa is the first of these city-states to get a charter. I think Genoa gets in the five, uh, sorry, in the 950s, 960s, this charter saying you can collect your own taxes, you can, uh, you can, you can, you know, create your own laws. And what happens is that As the late 900s and early 1000s come about, you have this situation where you have all of these Italian city-states which have been paying lip service to the emperor, but are de facto self-governing. And some of these Roman emperors, quote-unquote, over the next few hundred years will try to reassert themselves. And ironically, it's their very attempts to reassert themselves that'll cause the Italians to say, hey, no, you know, we're independent. The Roman Empire has long collapsed. You're illegitimate. Your position, your usurper, the Roman Empire actually fell hundreds of years ago. So tell us a little bit about the wars of the Lombard League. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that 
I think to start with that, we, we have to talk about um, papal reform, which happens. So the Wars of the Lombard League happened in, in the 12th century, uh, beginning, you know, and, and, and really give birth to what, what we come, come to think of as the Middle Ages, the high Middle Ages in Italy. Uh, the immediate predecessor to Dante, for example, who people have probably probably encountered. Um, but really, I, I think this starts with a kind of um, a papal reform in the 10, 1060s, basically, where you get these monks, uh, this this network of monks in central Italy, who start to to start to have a sense that you know the world has come very far from the precepts of the gospel, and they start to really um, want to assert. Papal independence. So part of the outcome of the Charlemagne process, I emphasized when, when we were just talking about a moment ago how it was the Pope who crowned Charlemagne, but really part of the outcome of this entire process that we're there were glossing over, and that's frankly, frankly beyond my 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 expertise, but basically um is that these warlords have a huge impact on the actual conduct of the church all throughout, not just in Italy, but throughout Western Europe. Now, you know, they're in charge of the bishops and the, the clerical hierarchy, not the Pope. And so in the, in the 1060s, these group of people around, um, around the Pope start to assert claims to papal independence, to papal supremacy in the spiritual sphere, meaning, you know, the kings and emperors shouldn't be the people who nominate the bishops, right? That's, that's, the, that's the clergy's role. And to start to make a more generally a more deep distinction between the clergy and the clerical world and the secular world and the, and the layman. Um, so if that, if that makes sense, that's going to set them up on a collision course with the empire. So you have these warlords that are trying to assert themselves. You have the Pope who claims what is called by Catholics. Um, what is it? What is it? Is it Cesaro papism, which is the idea that the, what, what's the exact word? Yeah. Yeah. So Cesaro papism. So that's, that's going to be the idea that, that the Pope is ultimately is not, is not just a spiritual Lord, but by virtue of being a spiritual Lord, also has authority over secular rulers. Um, so, so this comes to a head where these city-states that have been de facto independent start clashing with these warlords slash Roman emperors who at this point have sort of well-organized states that they control, but that are in you know, France and elsewhere also in, in, in Germany. What, t- t- tell us a little bit more about, about, about the Lombard League and what yeah, exactly happens. Sh- sure. So, I mean, basically, uh, with this assertion of papal supremacy, suddenly these city-states, these really now, na- I mean, th- but these are small city-states, not the kind of big city-states that we'll see on the map later on. Um, but these, these cities now have a big ally. In, in their battle against, in their battle to, 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 for autonomy. And so the Pope fundamentally is the kind of ringleader or organizer behind the Lombard League. And, and the Pope is just doing the same thing he had done in 800, right? He wants independence, he wants security. But now you have these kinds of quasi-autonomous cities who are using that papal um, alliance essentially to declare themselves self-governing republics with with papal authority and 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 in in many cases these are these are specifically meant targeted against the incursions of Frederick the 1st Barbarossa red the red bearded frederick who is this warrior he's he's a, he's a real warrior so, and when is frederick barbarossa ruling uh is it we're talking the the mid the mid 12th century mid mid to mid mid to late 12th century and he's a, he's sort of an amazing figure who um is ultimately uh, going to go on, going to go on crusade, and so I mean, he um, starts to revive Roman law. I mean, this is part of um, 
we haven't really talked about this, but you know, even though we we associate the the rebirth of Roman law a, a little bit later, it has 12th century roots. Um, it's it's getting um, it's and, and and Frederick Barbarossa is is one of these people who has a really strong sense of the imperial dignity, but also an increasingly um, legalistic view of what that that might look like, and so. He is he is struggling to assert what we might think of as practical rule over North and Central Italy, but he's unable to do that. It's definitely the case, though, that his power base in Germany is more. Um, it, it seems to be more integral and more taxable, frankly, than for some of these other warlords that that we had talked about in in the Charlemagne era and the immediate um, past the, Char- the the successors to Charlemagne. And and Tibo, some of that is. Is another thing we haven't really talked about. We have to talk about the Crusades because the Crusades are associated um, not only with this kind of um, ideological expansion of Christendom, but also with the the economic quickening of Christendom. I mean, when we were gi- giving a sketch of what like life on the ground in the in the ninth or tenth centuries looked like, I mean, I was sort of vague. But part of that is what it definitely wasn't was a dynamic commercial society. Um, that much. I, I am 100% sure about. and But that changes as we get towards the Crusades, and especially during the Crusades. And, 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 and there's something that historians call the 12th century Renaissance. It's not the big Renaissance, but it's an important moment where basically commerce and underlying kind of economic productivity of the countryside seems to be growing, um, you know, from about 1050 to about, you know, 1300, right? This is the, the great medieval expansion of the European economy. As to why it happens, I, I think people have, have, have different views. I, I don't really know. I mean, um, we could talk a little bit about what that might look like specifically from the Venetian case in a little bit. But the important thing is that, is that these, these um, rulers like Barbarossa have more of a tax base, a fiscal base than their ancestors, say, 100 years earlier, even, or 200 years earlier. Um, and you also see this in England, you see this in France. It's it's a European-wide phenomenon. So basically, these rulers can can kind of capitalize on this economic expansion to build, uh, I think, what we you know proto states, basically. Yeah, and so as we go, we're going to go back to the War of the Lombard League, but let's put a quick bookmark there. So there's this major economic transformation that's happening in Europe. It starts really before the 900s, uh, sorry, in the late 900s, and sort of picks up steam with the Crusades, where for a very long time, from maybe the end of the reign of sort of, you know, Justinian to the beginning of the Crusades, all of the trade and all of the (coughs) cosmopolitan, sophisticated, advanced economies are in the Islamic world. And Europe has this very rural sort of agrarian economy for reasons that are way too complicated to go into into this podcast. The Islamic world is in decline. And as the Islamic world is in decline, Europe starts declaring crusades. And all of these European basically warlords from France, from Germany, from England, from Spain, start conquering Islamic territory. And to a certain extent, um, this starts equalizing technology, although that's very debated and controversial. But what is definitely clear is that as far as it concerns Italy, it allows all of these Italian city-states that are once again nominally part of the Holy Roman Empire, but de facto independent, such as Genoa and Venice, which is de facto part of the Byzantine Empire, but once again, kind of like Genoa, de facto independent from the Byzantines, to start establishing all of these trade routes to the east, where 
the Crusaders will arrive in Syria, they'll arrive in modern-day Israel, they'll conquer a city, and they need to finance the Crusades. So tell us a little bit, before we get back into the wars of the Lombard League, yeah. um, how the Crusades lead to this changing economic pattern in medieval Italy. Yeah, uh, well, it's a, it's a great question. So, so to begin, I mean, to begin with, um, you know, the, the Crusaders often are going to require ships, uh, sometimes to get to the Levant or where that, where, wherever they're going to eventually, they, you know, they'll, they'll also try to, to conquer Egypt under, under in, in, the, in the Fifth Crusade later. But also once they conquer these lands, you know, by far the best way to, to, to stay in touch with them is, is through shipping. And really the Italian, Italian city-states are, are best poised to do this. And it's, it's not just um, Genoa and Venice, but also in this period, it's also Pisa and Amalfi. Um, so that, you know, um, and, and, and so there's these four kind of um, maritime, maritime city-states. And, you know, these early city-states, I mean, they probably, before the Crusades, they were probably basically slave traders. First, they were probably trading even Catholics slaves, but eventually primarily probably Slavic slaves. But with the advent of the Crusades, there's a, there's a new opportunity. Uh, and, and, and also, by the way, functioning kind of almost like pirates. So, so they're preying in, the, in, in, in this period, in the, in the, in the, basically in the 10th and, and early 11th century. They're just preying on Islamic shipping whenever they can. So partially commercial traders, partially pirates. But um, the Crusades offers a chance, you know, not just to increase their presence on the sea, but to militarize it and, and legitimize it from a, a broader perspective. And that, that definitely happens in the, in the wake of the, the First Crusade that it, it, ten, and called in 1095 by, by the Pope, where they, they, the, the Crusaders conquer all this territory in, in the Levant. And the crusading, the Italian crusading states, they not only have this increased demand for their shipping, but they also get like effectively little colonies within the cities conquered in the Levant. So they start having personnel sort of permanently abroad. And this is the start of that great phenomenon of the Italian merchant traveler who, who lives abroad, but maintains all of these economic ties back, back home. So to go into this trade, there's a few dynamics at play. The first part is that you have to remember that this long distance travel with the technology that they have is incredibly expensive. So they can only trade in goods that are very like expensive at the point of sale. So luxury goods. So the one that you mentioned at first is people, human trafficking, as we'd call it today, or, or slavery. But later on, this evolves into gold and precious metals and silk. That's the famous one. Spices is the other famous one. But also all sorts of other things that you don't think about, like opium and cannabis, which are powerful medicines, honey, which is also sort of this rare commodity, sugar, and all sorts of other trade goods, certain types of steel that are very hard to produce and very expensive. But the key thing is that think about it in terms of the price of shipping, you know, 100 kilos of a good. 100 kilos of grain would have a very low price, whereas 100 kilos of silk would have this astronomically high price. So they're only going to go for these things that have this very high price per kilogram. So that's sort of the first dynamic at play. And the second dynamic at play is that getting to the so-called Holy Land, to the area that these crusaders are conquering from the Muslims, is very expensive. And you can go by land, but 
by land, there's all sorts of, of, of problems. Um, in fact, Frederick Barbarossa will even die falling into some <laughs> pond at land as a, as a funny side note. But, but, but going by land is, is, is awful, right? Imagine trying to walk from France all the way to Syria, how just horrible that would be. So really, realistically, all of the later crusades and all of the smart crusaders go by sea. But the problem is that if you go by sea, well, you got to go by boat. And who owns the boat? Well, as you said, it's Venice, it's Amalfi, it's Pisa, it's Genoa, it's these Italian sort of sea traders. And the problem is that renting these boats is expensive. So how do you pay for it? Well, there's these contracts that are signed. Thomas F. Madden in uh, Venice, A New History, talks about this, where what they do is that the Crusaders will, maybe similar to the way modern venture capitalists operate, they will sign these contracts where, hey, we're going to conquer XYZ cities, and you'll get a quarter of the city that we conquer. <laughs> so as a result, the Crusaders, to pay for the Venetians' transportation services, end up giving the Venetians and the Genoans and the Pisans and all of these Italian maritime city-states quarters or thirds or little sections of these towns in the Middle East. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's right. I mean, these were, these were, um, these were speculative ventures, right? Where where the, uh, the 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 prospects for real repayment were were in the success of the enterprise, I, I think there's just no question about that. Um, you know, part partly because this is a you know from from the, the standpoint of the of the knights and the crusaders, they're coming from a still what we would call kind of an under monetized, under commercialized economy, and so they don't have they don't they don't have the wherewithal to pay for these. I mean, these are these are in some cases these are these are people who are raised on on almost nightly fairy tales. Who have no idea about this kind of bustling commercial world that exists, say, in the Middle East, and then they show up and they say, you know, you know. So it, you could really see this in the Fourth Crusade, which we'll talk about, where the Venetians kind of run circles around around the Franks. But, um, but, but, yeah. I mean, the, these are. Um, that's not to say that 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 people were not motivated. Even the Italians were not motivated by um, crusading zeal. It's just that it's just that crusading was also good for their pocketbooks. Right. So it's sort of how um, maybe modern corporations treat global warming, where, you know, a lot of modern corporations are legitimately like want the world to not die and be a better place. But it also kind of benefits their pocketbook if they can take advantage of like tax breaks for going green and stuff like that. Would you say that's sort of a fair concern? I, I, I do. I do think it's a fair concern. Also, you know, the, the, the environmental movement has something almost religious about it. And I think you could, I think that's very apt. So um, you have two trends to recap. On the first case, you have this idea that the Roman Empire never fell, but De facto, you have city-states that are independent, but people go to church and they hear about the Roman emperors and so forth. And there's these guys, mostly by the 1200s Germans, although every now and then a Frenchman sort of will claim this <laughs> title, but that's not too important, um, and who are calling themselves holy Roman emperors. Let's not even get into the Byzantines right now. You, you have Roman emperors living in Germany who spend no time in Rome, who spend no time in Italy. At the same time, in part because of the Crusades, in part because of improvements in technology and changing climatic conditions, all of these factors, you have the economy of these Italian city-states that's modernizing, where they're developing trade. So I think now we have sort of a pretty good foundation to go into the ultimate event where the Italian city-states will finally start really breaking free from this so-called Holy Roman Empire 
And you'll have the, the Renaissance starting in the late 1200s, 1300s. So explain how that happens. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that happens by the development. I mean, you know, I have to admit, I mean, I'm more, I come out of a more of a Florentine than Venice background in terms of my, my, my studies. I have a very Florentine attitude, I guess, towards what, what comes out of this. But basically, um, the, in order to defend themselves against imperial authority, these city-states in North Central Italy invent a kind of radical form of democracy. It's not democracy in a full sense. There are exclusions of the, of, the, of the very lowest classes. There's exclusions of women. But there's this upsurge in political participation um, that you see that is constantly fraught. It's, it's constant. I'll talk about the Venetian case in, in a little bit. It's constantly um, under threat. And yet it allows these cities to mobilize power against um, not really just the emperor, because the emperor is distant. He's, that, he's like that, that, that high mountain and distant Chinese emperor, but really against the landed nobility who ha- are effectively meant to be his representative. So it's, it's these, these popular uprising against the local counts and dukes who are imperial representatives. And I have to admit, the, the, the political, um, the fighting between these, these incipient city-states with these kind of radically participatory governments and the the landed elites it's extremely complicated and i mean the the politics of this period are truly i was going to say byzantine uh and, and it's not as clear as it's just like italians versus germans because within italy there's kind of this whole fight and i don't really want to get into i just want to give it passing mention of the guelphs and the ghibellines where basically the guelphs are supporting italian independence and the ghibellines are supporting the power of the uh the the, the rulers of france and it's very complicated because it's proxy wars it, it really reminds me of uh of sort of the conflicts in between the soviet union and the u.s over say the control of namibia in the 1980s and stuff like that <laughs> so but but what's important is that Around the 1160s to 1180s, first against Frederick I, there sort of is this Lombard League that forms to fight off against the the imperial powers. And there's a whole bunch of wars of the Lombard League. And after each war, Italy gets more and more independent and the city-states become more and more enshrined. And it's this very progressive process. And by the 1250s, when when Frederick II is uh, is defeated, the League basically becomes obsolete and is disbanded. But Italy is 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 de facto independent, and 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 the conflict sort of continues on with the with the Guelph and the Ghibellines well into uh, the time of Dante. And, and eventually, the, the Guelphs win. So it gets even more complicated. We have white and black Guelphs who are fighting. <laughs> yes. But so, let, let's not go into that. But yeah, walk us through the time from say 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 after the end of the wars of the Lombard League into the time that we'd think of as sort of the beginning of the Renaissance. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I agree. I, I, I don't know about uh, the Namibia analogy, but I mean, I basically think that it's best to think of this as a kind of civil war, um, a civil war between these city-states and um, not so much between like, say, with, with these German overlords, but really with the agents of those German overlords who become the, the la- who are the landed elite. And what's significant about that, Thibault, is that they, you know, part of what happens in, in Italy is the precocious commercialism, the precocious centralization around cities. Now, some of that is because, like I said earlier, cities never declined as much from, from ancient Rome, but part of it was also because 
you know, these cities defeat the landed gentry. Basically, what happens in the, in, in the 13th and early 14th, well, and, and throughout the 14th century is that these cities really defeat and those great landed elites and incorporate them into the city in some cases. But then looking forward to the, to the out, outcome of the process. These- and and, and to, cut, to, to just give a quick side, the landed elites generally supported the imperial authorities, yes. whereas the, the, the new sort of merchant class that made their money, I don't know, through trading with the Middle East or something, were more supportive uh, of independence. Exactly. And I, I, exactly. And I think, and then the reason those landed elites support the empire is that's, that's where they held their title. You, when you're a feudal lord, you, you owe your title to a land to another, to a, to a superior, a king or an emperor. And so they 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 owned in some sense their their status at least partially or legitimacy partially to the empire. So that that was the nature of it. But but as you point out, um, and I think this is equally relevant, and this is going to be the big difference ultimately between Venice and these other Italian city states. These Italian city states, this pop, this popular participatory government ends up being incredibly um, unstable. So you get so like you said, right? You have the Guelphs and the Ghibellines, supposedly the pro pope. Pro versus the pro imperial parties in all these towns, but really once once the Ghibellines get thrown out, then the Guelphs, then they then they fracture as well. So you've got this constant fracturing of alliances. Um, partly and, and really the only um, the only political group that you could reliably count on was your family group, your lineage. Uh, everything else was potentially unstable in this world. So what you end up happening though, despite this instability, once these small city-states kind of cast off the imperial yoke, uh, which was a very light yoke, they start fighting with each other and and, and and, and, and conquering each other and building these domains around their cities. Why is that significant? Well, it's significant partly because you start getting bigger city-states and you start getting a, a very slow, gradual simplification of that kind of political map of Italy. But it's also significant because you start getting the merchants who are running these cities, in many cases, they start uh, controlling the land around and start, I mean, I mean, I don't want to exaggerate this, but introducing more market-oriented agriculture into, into the, the, the countryside. Um, so that's one kind of process that's happening as we move into the Renaissance, as we move into the 1300s. The next thing that happens, and that's, I think, related, is because of this instability, because of this instability we we get ruling families start to, to take control of these republics in Italy. So one by one, the um, these these radical democracies, if I can use that somewhat anachronistic term, these radical democracies start falling into the hands of uh, we would call them kind of despots or tyrants, right? These these families who don't have any deep legitimacy, but who start wielding real control over these cities. Now, the most famous of these is certainly. Um, the Visconti family in Milan, the Visconti family in Milan, who's going to be so important for thinking about the late, late 14th, early 15th century history in Italy. Um, but we could also think of like the Scaliger family in, in Verona. You know, we could think about, you know, the, the Piccolomini family in Siena and ultimately the, the Medici family in Florence. So a series of these, these dynastic families that, take, that, that start threatening these republics basically. So now that we've arrived 
at the beginning of the Renaissance, late 1300s, early 1400s, let's quickly gloss over some of the major powers of the Italian peninsula and do a quick tour to see what's around in Italy. So let's start from the south going up north. And keep in mind, for all of the you listeners, the map is constantly changing, right? The Renaissance is a 150-year-long period. It's not going to be consistent. There's going to be some variety And so we're going to be necessarily glossing over uh, the history. So just keep that in mind. So let's start from the south. There's the kingdom of Naples and Sicily. It's founded by a group of crusaders from modern day Normandy. They're very, very distant ancestors were Vikings, but de facto in practice, they're French and they're, they sort of bring Frankish culture. They reconquer Sicily from a group of Muslims that had taken over Sicily, or Muslims from Tunisia. And eventually, the kingdom of Sicily breaks down. And this political entity called the kingdom of Naples and Sicily, which controls kind of the southern half of Italy and controls Sicily, emerges. And what's quite interesting is that this is the most centralized entity of the time. And it also will be heavily influenced by powers in Spain and elsewhere. So tell us a little bit about, about what's happening in Naples. Sure. Um, well, I mean, it, you know, your, your account of the, the, the Norman conquest is, is, is definitely um, appropriate background here. I mean, it's another case of the Pope versus the secular rulers that basically, you know, to protect himself from the, well, really from, from Frederick II, who we talked about earlier, the Pope invites the French uh, a junior cadet, you know, a cadet member of the, uh, you know, the House of Anjou to come basically uh, and take the throne of Naples. And so you get this kind of competition between, uh, and and this happens, in in, in fact, um, in the in the in the you know, basically the the late 13th century. And so for for a long time, and that's going to kind of set the dynamics, I think, um, for Naples for the next couple hundred years. You're going to end up with with rival claimants, a kind of French. House of Anjou claimant, and eventually a kind of Aragonese claimant from Spain. And and at various moments, you're, there's going to be one or another of these um, houses is going to be in control, but it is going to be this kind of centralized monarchy with what's sometimes described as a kind of latifundia style, you know, these big plantation style, you know, feudal kind of social base for, for this kingdom. So that, you know, in some ways, most people tend to think that Naples is essentially, or the kingdom of Naples uh, is like the most feudal part of Italy, even as we go past, you know, into the 13th, 14th, and 15th centuries. The other thing to note about it, I think, and this is just, a, I guess, a corollary of that point, Thibault, is that is that Naples doesn't have, that kingdom of Naples doesn't have these autonomous uh, republics that you get in North Central Italy. Yeah, Naples is trapped in this world of feudalism. It, it's kind of it's semi-centralized in the sense that there's a, a king of the of Naples that controls all of it. It's decentralized in the sense that he controls all of this territory, like basically the southern half of Italy, through sort of feudal lords. So there are city states within it, and. Naples doesn't really participate in the Renaissance the same way that other states do. Naples is much poorer. In fact, there's a lot of people at the time, uh, like like I think that uh, Machiavelli talks about how, how Naples is like bureaucratic and like inefficient. To put a modern analogy and anachronism, Naples is kind of like sort of the backwards DMV when everybody else is uh, sort of Tesla and SpaceX at the time, by 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 comparison, could could you comment a little bit about about Naples' economy and, and this yeah. 
causes this really, because it's so poor, all of these random foreign powers keep intervening and messing with its politics. So tell us a little bit about Naples' economy. Sure. Um, I, I will, um, you know, I think that... Uh, that part of the issue here is, I mean, I think the, the the fact it has a it has a small renaissance, especially in the I think when we get into the 16th century, and I, I think we could also say that some very famous Renaissance figures do emerge out of of Naples. I'm thinking, for example, of of this um this guy Lorenzo Valla. Some of you may have have heard of Lorenzo Valla, but he's this early humanist, this 15th century humanist, who's the person who discovers that the con- the donation of Constantine. Is a forgery. Now, the Donation of Constantine is um, is this text that in which the Emperor Constantine supposedly gave the Pope secular authority, control over Western Europe, and it was a forgery. And so, there are some of these figures from Naples who are involved in the kind of recovery of classical knowledge and and some of the the things we associate with the Renaissance. But I think you can see this, frankly, just going to the city of Naples. How much it's it's really a Baroque city, not a Renaissance city. I think it's just visible uh, kind of in, even in the urban fabric. And some of this, I think, has to do with this more centralized, more monarchical uh, regime we've talked about. Um, this is this is an economy that's going to come increasingly to export agricultural produce, raw materials uh, to north to supply the, the manufacturing kind of centers in, in north central Italy eventually even throughout uh, Western Europe by the time we get into the 17th and 18th century. So in some ways, a lot of people trace the split, the famous split between the Italian economy, north, the rich North economy and the, the poor Southern economy to this period. You know, and, and you know, you've even heard people say, right, that, that the global South starts south of Rome. And, you know, I think there's some truth to that. I mean, certainly patterns of trade tended to favor North Central Italy from a pretty early date by the time we get into the to the, the the late Middle Ages, and I think this is a reminder that centralization and a strong central government in this period do not mean economic progress. So, moving a bit north, we have the Papal States. The papacy is this very complicated concept. And I really don't want to get too much into the origins, but to give the quick, too long, didn't read sort of summary, the, 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 the Christianity is dominated by five pentarchs who are five sort of super powerful religious leaders. Each one controls a city. There's one in Constantinople, one in Alexandria, one in Jerusalem, et cetera, one in Antioch, and one in Rome. And as these cities fall one by one to Islam, basically only Constantinople and Rome are left. And what's quite interesting is that starting with Gregory the Great, they start kind of backtracking this history and they're like, well, all of Christianity was always run out of Rome. And eventually this boils into this disagreement with the, the, the Byzantines who have their own sort of pa- the patriarch of Constantinople. The two popes eventually excommunicate each other, resulting in the Catholic split. The details, once again, are quite arcane, but you end up with the Pope who is sort of claiming control over the Catholic part of Christianity. And in terms of the papal states themselves, Rome in antiquity has this population of some historians say up to a million, although there's some reasons for skepticism. But anyways, Rome has this massive population and Rome empties. So to the extent that there kind of is post-apocalyptic, if you read the letters of Gregory the Great, he describes how all of the plazas are empty. All of the buildings have collapsed. He's writing in the 600s. And Rome for a long time really is this post-apocalyptic empty city. The only reason why it exists 
is because it was the capital of the empire and it had this religious significance where there was this guy who called himself the Pope because it was the capital of the empire and its economy lives off of pilgrimage uh, for a long time. However, over time, starting kind of with Charlemagne, the city of Rome starts to recover and the Republic of St. Peter if you think of it, the Vatican to this day is kind of a republic where the Pope is elected upon the death of his predecessor by the various high-level members of the clergy, and the Republic of St. Peter is established. And the Papal States becomes this collection of city-states that come to dominate the city of Rome and central Italy with for various complicated reasons. Once again, I don't want to get into the Avignon papacy, but has a few holdings in France and elsewhere. And by, say, the 1400s, the city of Rome is once again starting to recover. So what are the papal states doing at the early Renaissance? What, what are kind of the role of the papal states? Well, that's a, that's a good question. So we, of course, we associate Rome with the papacy. It's 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 not just us who do that. The mid, people in the Middle Ages did as well. But um, you know, Boniface the Eighth is this guy. Um, readers of Dante will have encountered Boniface because Dante hates Boniface so much, and is is talking. You know, I mean, his his whole trip through Inferno is a is an attack on Boniface. But basically, is he the guy who's in the ditch, uh, head first, feet up? He's he's the next. Yes, he. Well, that's his predecessor, uh, Pope Nicholas. I think. But he's like under the guy in the ditch. He's coming. No, he's coming. He's still alive. He's still alive, but he's destined for the ditch. He's destined oh, for the ditch fine. after. Um, but basically, the reason Boniface the Eighth, in a in a way, he's the culminating figure of all these things that you were these tendencies that you were just talking about, Thibault. Like he really puts forward the strongest claims of any pope to temporal power in the secular world. So he and the say he has this sense that the pope is is really God on earth. And he effectively gets gets killed. Uh, well, his death is hastened, we should say, by agents of the French. I mean, this is a real threat. These claims are a real threat to the to the monarchs in Europe, and especially the French monarchs. The French monarch, um, you know, uh, Philip IV, basically um, is going to have his goons uh, take this guy out. And in the aftermath of Boniface, who, who dies in, in 1303. Effectively, uh, the Pope, the, the papacy is going to move to Avignon, where it's going to be controlled. So in the 14th century, really, Rome isn't quite the center of, of the Catholic world. It's really Avignon, which is this, um, this, this papacy that is controlled by the French monarchy. And finally, um, through a series of, I mean, the, 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 this is called the Babylonian captivity, by the way, of, of the church. And so to give a quick recap, what, what, what's happened is that the French kind of have these puppet popes. Although there's some debate about this, but the, the, the most commonly described as puppet popes of the French kings that are based in France, in southern France, called Avignon. And Italy is kind of devoid of the popes. And all of the, these shenanigans are happening in Italy during this time, where while the popes are out being controlled by the French, A, at times, there's multiple guys calling each other popes, uh, <laughs> one of which is in Italy, one of which is at Germany at the times, one of which is in France. It's a total mess. And also, there's these random revolutionaries like Cola di Renzo. And earlier, there's also <laughs> yes. another attempt who are attempting to restore the Roman Republic out of Rome because they're like, well, the popes are gone, so let's try to restore the Roman Republic. And these, these attempts will all last, like, at best, a, a handful of years, you know. In the case of Cola di Renzo, a few months at a time. <laughs> um, so. Yeah. 
it's like the revolutions of 1848, you know, this moment of an incredible outburst of optimism that very quickly gets, um, gets shut down. Um, but yeah, the situation, the religious situation is unbelievably complicated. Um, and it finally ends with the end of the great schism, the Western schism in 1417 at the Council of Constance. And I, I think what's significant for, for us in this, in this kind of podcast and, is and just- the end of the Western schism is when the Pope returns to Rome and all of these other guys who are calling themselves Pope acknowledge that the guy who was in France was the real Pope the whole time <laughs> and sort of back down. Exactly. So now we have one Pope again, one Pope, and we're back in Rome. So after this interlude of over 100 years of like just- absolute complexity, right? Um, we're back in Rome. We're back uh, with one Pope. But now here's the thing is the Popes realize that, okay, okay, we're not going to make quite the same claims to secular power as say, you know, Pope Boniface VIII had made, but we do need to have a really strong papal state, right? That is crucial to the well-being of the church that central Italy stays under papal control so that nothing like this should ever happen again. And so you get a series of Popes, particularly as we get really um, closer to the, the you know, 1500, a series of popes who are trying to really uh, do two things, I think, at once. One is they're trying to really establish their control over the city of Rome itself. And that means two things. That means control over the cardinals, really making sure that it's the pope who has the power, not the various cardinals, who, as, as, as you mentioned, actually are the ones who elect the pope, of course. But after that election, the Pope wants to increasingly make cardinals into basically his functionaries. And the Pope is also interested in, in battering down the various kind of big families, the baronial families who control power in central Italy, especially the, the Orsini families and uh, the Colonna families, but also others. Right, So they're really trying to establish their power. So you end up with really militant popes. Uh, perhaps the most notorious of these is, is Pope Alexander VI, Borgia. He's the Borgia Pope. I think there's, um, there's a, I think maybe an HBO. Is he the uh, guy that they call the warrior Pope? No, the warrior Pope's going to be the, the next one, Julius II, who literally would dress himself in armor and go to battle. Uh, With the mace. <laughs> yes. I mean, he was, he was no joke, right? Uh, he, um, but, but, you know, Pope Alexander Borgia would really try to carve out a state either, you know, for the church, depending on who you believe, or maybe for his son, uh, Duke, Duke Val, you know, uh, Cesare Borgia, who is this um, figure that some people might know from, from Machiavelli, because he's sort of Machiavelli's hero uh, in some ways. But the point, I guess, is the Pope is, the Pope's embark on this mission of, of territorial con consolidation. I think I, 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 you know, need not point out that a lot of people were very skeptical of this from a religious standpoint. So, for example, um, the famous scholar Erasmus, uh, when when Julius II, this warrior pope, finally kicks the bucket, Erasmus writes this book called Julius Exclusus, Julius excluded from heaven. And the basic story of this book is that after Julius, Pope Julius dies, he goes to heaven and, and St. Peter turns him away because he was too warlike, right? The Pope is supposed to be a man of peace, you know, not a man of war. And, and so this is kind of the background to what's to the Reformation is that people are, are disillusioned by the, the worldliness of the papacy, not just the money and the corruption, but I think the, specifically the, the warlikeness of this, of this papacy. And let's talk about what would life have been like? You're living, you're, you're, you're traveling to Rome. The year is 1450 in the middle of all of this. What's Rome like? You know, Rome is increasingly, um, you know, it's it, the population is growing again. It's still 
it's still, uh, you know, like a city of ruins in some states of the Roman ruins, but that's starting to change. Um, you're starting to get, for example, great collections of the classical text. You're starting to, to get, you know, new buildings, more people. Uh, but this is really going to culminate under the papacy of the Medici Pope, Leo X, in, you know, who, who's elected, I forget exactly around, but around 1510. And, you know, that's when you're going to get this influx of the great Renaissance artists. That's when Raphael and Michelangelo are going to go there. Um, but people, you have to imagine in the, in the 15th century, you imagine people are starting to show an interest in these Roman ruins in a real way, right? So there's stories of people like Brunelleschi, who builds the, who's going to go on to build the, the famous um, cathedral of Florence, the dome of the cathedral. There's stories of him um, studying the, the Pantheon in, in Rome to figure out how you build a dome. So it becomes, it's starting to become this kind of hotbed of the Renaissance. Yeah, it really serves, it's sort of, it's still on the periphery of the Renaissance world, but because of its historical status, it sort of attracts a lot of the talent. And because the other areas are so economically prosperous, it really partakes, partakes in the prosperity of the, of the whole Italian sort of peninsula as a whole. And it really acts as sort of an incubator. Maybe if... Florence, which we'll get to next, is San Francisco and the Silicon Valley, and it's maybe the Houston of sort of the the, the Renaissance world. Yes, uh, well, yeah, or Austin, and it's going to end up coming into its own in the 16th century, where it will become a major center of the Renaissance, along along with Venice. Now, of um, course, it'll all come to an end after Protestant German armies. I don't really want to get too much into the into the war. Have the horrible sack. Of Venice, I mean, of Rome in in fifteen is it 1527? Yeah, 1527. And um, the the amount of rape and mass slaughter and genocide is on a scale really that's only seen. You know, uh, it's along the scale of like the the horrible wars of the 20th century. So t- tell us a little bit about sort of what what Rome's fate is, sort of as as this yeah. era comes to an end. Well, that, that, so, so traditionally, that's when historians have ended the Renaissance. We say, you know, 1527, you know, these German, these Germans who are many, I mean, it's a Spanish army. It's actually controlled by Charles V, uh, but he's gotten into a conflict with the Pope and his, most of his army are these Lutherans, these, these red who, who really hate the Catholic Church, uh, you know, and um, so it is this incredible bloodshed. And so we usually date the, the end of the Renaissance to then, but I just want to note, fast forwarding, what happens is Rome recollects itself and it's going to, there's going to be something called the Council of Trent, which is going to meet, you know, basically on and off throughout the, the 1540s and 1550s into the 1560s. And it's going to launch the Counter-Reformation or the Catholic Reformation. And Rome is going to then become the center of a kind of resurgent church and even a global church, because now we have to think about the Americas and, you know, and, and also places in India, this sort of global expansion of Europe that's going to start happening. Well, that's under largely under Spanish and Portuguese auspices, which is to say Catholic. And so Rome is going to become the center of the set of global Catholic world and the center of the Baroque. So even though it, there's this awful moment, this traumatic moment, I do think Rome is going to end up in a certain way its real golden age for me is not the Renaissance, but really the 17th century, the Baroque era. How fascinating. You, you know, the wonderful thing about studying history 
is that it always in the long run has a happy ending. You know, <laughs> life always gets better. Yeah, there's all of these horrible things that happen, but in the long term, you know, on the scale of centuries, things always just work out and people always end up way better off than they were 500 years in the past. Um, it's at least, at least, in, at least, I don't know if that's always true everywhere, but it, it, you know, it's definitely the case. I think in in Rome, for first traumatic as that as that late Renaissance moment was. But yeah, well, I like to think of it. Well, if it's not true, that it's either true or it's not yet true. That's I, I try to be optimistic. Um, all right, so Florence, yes, Florence um, is yeah the most libertarian of the of the of the renaissance city-states and maybe also the most libertine and um yeah so so how does florence become a republic and uh and and, and what goes on there in fact you 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 probably would make the case that it's the birthplace of the renaissance right i i would make i i would make that case yeah and and, and you know and the, the the question of why um, why Florence is always, um, it's always, there's always an element of mystery there. But what I guess I would say is Florence is the city where conflict, political conflict was incredibly intense as it were, as it was almost everywhere in, in, in the Renaissance, uh, world of Italy, but where the Republic, no one family was able to fully dominate, um, really until right up until, you know, I think, um, the 16th century when the Medici, who had sort of dominated, but not not totally. Had sort of informally dominated this, you know, in the in the era before can finally install themselves as as dukes of Florence. So it's a very productive kind of conflict. Um, it's a conflict that's also um, has class dimensions too. Uh, Florence becomes one of the most like uh, I mean uh, industrialized cities in in the course of the 14th century, where you know like like one out of five people in the city are connected with the um, the the production of wool textiles. And, um, and so you get this kind of class consciousness among the, the lower middle classes at the same time that you have incredible wealth in the form of the elite banking families. Of course, that's where the Medici are going to emerge out of that world as well. But, but also um, many, other, many other families who, people who control capital all across Western Europe from, from the King of England um, all the way to various German courts and uh, in fact, the papacy itself, right, uses Florentine bankers. So you have this kind of diversified economy. You have this unusual political, this 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 constant political conflict that never results in a single family, let's say, taking control. And so it's it's a kind of productive, it's a sort of productive, competitive society that emerges in 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 Florence. Um, I, I think we could really see this. I mean, uh, for me. The story of these early Renaissance artists really uh, embody this. You know, you, you think about the famous. So I, I mentioned earlier how Brunelleschi had gone to Rome to study how to build domes and study Roman architecture more generally. Well, this, how, the reason he goes there is because he leaves Florence in a huff after losing a, an artistic competition. So the the city of Florence, the commune, uh, wants to build um, you know uh, gates for their baptistry, and you know they have a competition to see who's going to make the best of these gates. And it goes to this guy, Lorenzo Ghiberti, Ghiberti, a famous artist. But Brunelleschi then leaves in a huff and, for, and goes to Rome. But what I like about the story is this competitiveness, the sense that, that the Florentines um, want to have the best city on earth. And they're forcing their artists into competition over that. And I think what's true of art is actually true in, in so many arenas 
in, in 14th and 15th century Florence. Yeah, yeah. Reading, so I've read um Paul the Deacon, sort of the, the primary story. It's, it's kind of horrible to 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 read. <laughs> but Paul the Deacon, they don't sound like the Italians that I know today, you know? Um and Paul the Deacon, it's sort of the it's like Grunwolf, the warlord, gathered his warriors to raid and make war against, you know, it kind of reads like the Klingon or something like that. Whereas, whereas when you read the accounts uh, 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 of Lorenzo versus Brunelleschi, they're totally recognizably Italian. You know, it's just like, yeah. it's just like genius gay artist who's like, Lorenzo, I hate you. you you're taking the door contracts for me. I, I love it. And what, what, so what's happening is that there's this hyper-competitive bidding process. They're building this great cathedral in Florence. They want to build the doors. Lorenzo, who is this artist, makes this uh, th this door panel that's kind of toned down. Whereas Brunelleschi makes this really like like hyper emotional panel for the door. And of course, the more conservative sort of church um, authorities and the merchants who are sort of financing the church decide to go for Lorenzo's more toned down sort of doors. So they go for that. So Brunelleschi goes into, and once again, it's another interesting thing is that it highlights how the story of Brunelleschi, how A, there's this church that's being financed by merchants. B, there's this competitive bidding process. C, there's like the ability for Lorenzo, who is this artist from sort of a, a middle-class background to just participate and win. So Brunelleschi in this fit of rage goes to Rome with his his lover who is who is a man which also shows how how tolerant society has become and he goes and he explores all the roman ruins and he learns from the wisdom of the ancients he then bids to build the dome sort of the roof of the church and he invents this super innovative system where there's this iron framework sort of an iron bird cage if you can imagine that inside of the dome where there's a second dome inside of the big dome holding up the dome and because of this, he wins the bid, he kind of sticks it to Lorenzo, and he ends up building uh, the, 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 the great cathedral of Florence, which is probably one of the greatest buildings. And what's quite interesting is that a lot of the architectural styles were sort of stuck in the Gothic era, which is think of it as, as the architecture of Charlemagne and sort of the, the early sort of, you know, 1000s, 1100s. The, the prototypical Gothic building is maybe Notre Dame in, uh, in Paris, right? That's sort of the architecture. And he goes back and tries to reimagine what Roman architecture may have looked like. And of course, his imagining of it is kind of, you know, fantastic and not really accurate. But in the process, he invents the new architecture, which becomes the modern architecture. And what's so fascinating about Florence is that it had just the right environment to cultivate that. Another interesting thing about Florence is that the three great Renaissance thinkers who sort of trigger the Renaissance, Dante, Boccaccio, and uh, Petrarch, Dante, Petrarch, and Boccaccio are all Florentines. So, so let, let's talk a little bit about about what's happening in the in the intellectual world before we get into the the sort of the financing of it. Let's let's talk a little bit about the, these these great thinkers. Sure. Um, you know, it, it's 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 again, it's a little mystery why Florence produces these thinkers and not, for example, Genoa or Venice, which in so many ways seems so comparable. To Florence, but what is the what is the case is that you know Dante, obviously a Florentine, he is really the first to insist on um, using Italian or the Tuscan, really um, using it for the epic mode, right? Saying that you could express thought, you don't need Latin, 
to express the most complex thought. You can do it in Italian. And this is something that um, you know Dante I- I insists on, and you're going to end up, of course, with many, many other writers following him by the time we get to the, the 15th century who are writing in Tuscan or Italian rather than in, uh, in Latin, even though these people could all write in Latin perfectly well. And so that's like sort of Dante, one of Dante's big, big sort of legacies, I think. Um, Petrarch, uh, a bit different, because actually Petrarch was obsessed with trying to capture that Latin, that pure Latin of the ancients. His most famous work, the work that we read, are these love poems in Italian, but he was ambivalent about that. And instead, his what he thought his best work was, was a work about um, the Roman conquest of Africa, like uh, really of Carthage, the Roman car- conquest of Carthage, which he wrote in this, this high Latin poetic style. And I think Boccaccio is in the same kind of boat. So Boccaccio is best known for his Decameron. And by the way, there's also a great movie based on the Decameron um, by Pasolini, which I recommend to anyone who hasn't seen it. God, it's um, probably X-rated. <laughs> uh, it is. It's true. It's 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 definitely. Um, it's not. <laughs> it's not as X-rated as some of Pasolini's other movies. I can assure you. But it's, so I I I I tried to read uh, uh, the Decameron. So Petrarch, by the way, the the Divine Comedy is wonderful. It's 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 my favorite sort of primary Renaissance thing I've read so far. I haven't haven't read any Machiavelli yet. Petrarch, it's like, I've only read some of his love poetry and I haven't gotten to his political stuff yet. Boccaccio. So Petrarch and Dante, it's kind of like what you imagine people would, would write at the time. Boccaccio is fascinating because he's basically writing pornography. It's you, you read the Decameron and it, it reads like um, these novels that, that are published for like, like these trashy, like romance yeah. novels. It's, it's, it's incredible. He's sort of the, 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 the grandfather. It's, it's these stories about, you know, there, there's the doctor, there's the guy who's dying and the doctor says he's dying of love, but there's also the, the degree to which his novels are just full of sex. And it, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was taking it back. I'd never read, you know, I, I've read a lot of primary sources from like the Middle Ages, a little bit earlier periods, and I'd never come across anything like like the Decameron. I just, I just couldn't believe it. It's um, it it is really a, it's it's the it's the spirit of the Renaissance. I think distilled like this kind of naturalism, this realism, this 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 frankly this almost impiety that you see. In, in, in something like the Decameron. I, I should say another word. So the Decameron is a bunch of these short stories, just like Thibaut was saying, but it might be particularly, you know, in light of our COVID, our two years of COVID and, and all that's meant for us, it's maybe worth noting that the Decameron takes place during the Great Plague. And it's basically um, these rich, you know, aristocrats, these Florentine elites who get together, young, young, <laughs> it's a good... <laughs> three young men and seven young women, something like that, uh, you know, go, go out into the countryside and tell each other salacious stories while the pandemic is raging around them. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's also a kind of pandemic text, which, which might, might be interesting in light of our own experiences these last few years. Um, but, you know, what's interesting, too, is that Boccaccio comes to resent or, or, uh, or almost not quite repudiate, but later in his career, again, he turns back towards Latin, back towards more pious kinds of texts or more scholarly kinds of texts. And I think that's another part of this equation. So part of it is that these, these Tuscans like are sort of precociously writing in Italian at the same time that they're ambivalent about it right, or anxious about it. And so they're also developing their skills in Latin and eventually in Greek too. And so that's part of this. It's, 
is the is the Italian language side of things, but also this uh, this this becomes this great center for for Latin and Greek scholarship. Um, Greek, even especially, I mean, is really the center of of Greek scholarship in the 15th century in Western Europe. And so this is the moment where, for example, Plato really gets rediscovered, re, you know, and reinterpreted by by Westerners. Um, but also, eventually, all, all, all pretty much all of Greek literature will will have that, um, get that treatment. And, and so, um, so, so Florence, like so many things, it, it's just this incredibly dynamic place. And well, I guess I'll shut up about it, but, uh, but yes, I think it's, it's, it's still a mystery why it happens there and not any of the other Italian cities. Actually, I'd like to maybe talk about, I'm not going to say that this is the reason, but it's a reason. One of the most important technologies in the modern world comes from Florence. And it's really a technology that'll enable the commercialization of the Americas, the Industrial Revolution. It'll enable the modern world. And this technology is investment banking. The world of double-entry bookkeeping, the world of, although, although I, some people say it came from Venice, it, it is debated. But anyways, either Florence was an early adopter at the very least. The world of banking in the sense that we imagine it today. Also, the world of venture capital and private equity has some sort of early predecessors in Florence. Can you tell us a little bit about the Medicis, who they are, and what's happening from a finance perspective there? Sure. Um, I mean, a, a couple a couple things. I mean, first, I think you're quite right that in these, and you know, you get the, the this development of of modern bookkeeping techniques. You also get this um, these these basically these these family firms that learn how to to transfer to transfer um, wealth across Europe through something like a kind of um, version. The bill it's called the bill of exchange, but it's basically a, it's like a, a kind of medieval check, similar to our checks, which I guess even our checks are are kind of no longer really uh, um, nobody really uses checks anymore. But you know, I think we still at least know what they are, and. These banking families, I mean, part of the issue, there's a paradox, which is that nowhere in the world, uh, in in Eurasia, is there more of a direct prohibition against taking interest, what what medieval Christians called usury. And yet, that is exactly where that is exactly where these banking methods are going to come out of, which is some people think it's even in, in an effort to kind of circumvent the usury prohibition that you start to get these kinds of investment mechanisms. But, um, but you, end up, you end up getting uh, banks that develop into, um, particularly by the late uh, 14th century, even into like what we might think of as holding companies as a kind of, as a way to shield individual components of these banks, individual firms from, you know, to shield the family from total liability. So you get a kind of limited liability arrangement and finance, which allows you know, because what happened in the early 14th century, basically, uh, I think the 1320s, you had these big Italian families like the Bardi and the Peruzzi family. This is before the Medici are really on the scene. And, but they're just a family firm that in which their assets are all in bank. And when the king of, when the king of England defaults on his debts, just decides he's not going to pay, pay, pay what he owes to, to these families, then these fa- th- these families basically collapse. Their their finances collapse, and it causes a kind of maybe the first financial crisis uh, in European history. And this is even before the Black Plague. But 
What's going to happen in the aftermath as we go closer to, to 1400 is you're going to get these ways of, of shielding then, shielding family firms from that kind of unlimited liability. And part of that is, is, is definitely going to be this holding company model. And that's the Medici are going to be the, the greatest example of, in, in 15th century Italy of that, of that style. And one of the most interesting things in my mind about, about the history of Florentine banking is this institution called La Montagna. And Florence, like many governments, like many republics throughout history, is running a deficit, right? <laughs> yes. Florence is, the government is spending more than, than it's taking in. So what it does is that it starts issuing municipal bonds that are privately traded on a private market. And it creates this mountain of debt, this montagne. <laughs> and it works well for about 100 years. And then, as you mentioned, when uh, for completely unrelated reasons to the montagne, Florence has this financial crisis, Florence defaults on its debt. And it has this sort of disastrous inflationary consequences where the government of Florence sort of ends up debasing the currency to pay for it. It's like instead of printing money because they don't have paper money, they put like copper in the gold coins or whatever, tin in the silver or whatever. And the economy is hyperinflated. Nobody wants to loan money to the government. And Florence kind of slips back from being a republic that was kind of an imperfect oligarchic republic into just becoming over time the county of Tuscany once again, which is... <laughs> <laughs> which is quite interesting. It goes back to sort of the, the old system of, of sort of the big man who's in charge of society. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's true that this, that the, the, the I mean, the, the question that's, that's sort of there is also like, how do, how does the, how do the Medici turn their financial resources and convert it into kind of political power? And I think some of that it has to do with you end this very, I mean, the, the, the 14th, especially the early 14th century is this moment of really broad-based economic growth that, that involves mo most of society. It's a little bit different by the time we get to the 15th century. There's something like a, of a kind of aristocratization of, of, of wealth. Uh, as as the, the families that kind of survive this, the difficulties of the 14th century end up constituting kind of a, a smaller, narrower oligarchy of um, wealth and power, of which the, the Medici are the first at the top. I mean, the other thing about, about these, these, these so, but you do get these public debts so that by the time you get into the, the 16th century, you know, if you're an Italian, a wealthy Italian family, you probably own, you're probably getting, um, you own public debt probably throughout Italy. You know, just like you have a kind of diversified portfolio of bond holdings. Um, and so you get this new form of, of wealth alongside, you know, business enterprise, alongside landowning. Um, that, of course, is going to be, you know, part of the history of modern finance or the prehistory, you might say, of modern finance. Right. So it's not this low risk, low returns. You own a few serfs, you own some land <laughs> and uh, uh, you don't make that much money. But unless there's like a storm or something, you don't ever lose that much. You know, instead, you get these sort of high risk, high return immaterial assets. And uh, uh, many scholars like uh, Karl Marx and David Graber and Noam Chomsky identify this period sort of as the birth of capitalism. Although, you know, you could maybe say the same about the Abbasids or whatever, but but still it's, it's very interesting that, that people sort of trace modern Western capitalism to Florence during this period. Yeah, um, I, 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 that's one, one, yeah. I mean, I think it, it has a good, it has, it has good arguments for as, as any as, as coming out of this, this context. Um, I mean, I, I think for example, you know, in this connection, especially, uh, you know, it might be worth thinking about the Genoese bankers were also 
very much, you know, the, the biggest banking rival of the yeah, Florentines. Let, let's move to Genoa. Genoa is the oldest city state to, 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 to emerge from sort of the Lombard League. The Genoa yeah. gets this charter during the time, I think, of, of Otto I, so like 950s. And Genoa is sort of a, maybe you could call it a special economic zone, although I hesitate to use that anachronistic term of the Holy Roman Empire. And Genoa profits, like Venice and Amalfi and Pisa, from the Crusades by being sort of one of these maritime shipping powers and establishes its own sort of commercial empire. So tell us a little bit about what Genoa is during this time. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a moment of, of transition for Genoa. So for, 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 the, for much of the Middle Ages, the, the, you know, any anybody from Genoa was just assumed to be a merchant. It was probably the most pound for pound, the most mercantile, mercantilized city in, in, in Europe. You know, it was just, it's this tiny scrap of a city on the, you know, basically wedged between the mountains and the sea, but, but just thoroughly, um, thoroughly commercialized. But, and, and they do, just like you were saying, in the wake of the Crusades, they establish, you know, merchant colonies, city-state type things all throughout uh, the Eastern Mediterranean, even in the Black Sea. However, basically in the 14th century, they engage in a series of struggles with Venice over commercial control of the Eastern Mediterranean. And, and Genoa, you know, um, kind of loses that. They kind of, it kind of emerges as, as, as the defeated party from the struggle by the time we get uh, after what's called the War of Chioggia in, in, the late, in the late 14th century. And there's a kind of two things happened for Genoa that I think are worth noting. One is that you get the rise of these Genoese banks. I mean, there had been some already but they really come into their own as we go into um, the 15th century. And secondly, um, there's a move westward towards the Western Mediterranean, eventually towards the Atlantic, right? So that, you know, as we say, it ends up not being surprising that Christopher Columbus is from Genoa. Um, and the ties between Genoa and, and the early project of colonialism in the Americas go deeper. Basically, the Genoese elite families become the main bankers for the Spanish kings um, in this period, and essentially fund uh, a substantial uh, portion of, of, of Spanish colonialism in the Americas. So, so even though Genoa kind of loses the, the battle with, with Venice over the Eastern Mediterranean, it ends up kind of luckily turning westward just when that's going to be where all the profits are going to be anyways. And now let's move on to the last city before we end the podcast by sort of talking about Venice, Milan. Milan is sort of the anti-Florence. Milan is controlled by these authoritarian sort of rulers. They attempt to create this short-lived Ambrosian Republic, but it doesn't really work out. The government is constantly has this cycle where decadent leaders take over, a mercenary or a noble stages a coup. They are great because it turns out that Coups are actually a pretty good way of doing regime change in the Middle Ages and Renaissance. And, uh, and then their children and grandchildren are decadent and the cycle starts over. However, unlike other sort of authoritarian states, we tend to have this modern bias to like the libertarianism and the freedom of speech and the tolerance of Florence and to be predisposed against Milan. But objectively speaking, although Milan is authoritarian, it partakes in the Renaissance. The greatest Renaissance thinker of all, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, is, is patronized by sort of the rulers of Milan. And Milan, in many ways, outlasts a lot of its competitors like Florence. So 
Let's talk a little bit about Milan. What's going on there? Yeah, I, I think I'm glad you bring up Milan. I mean, I think Milan is not only a center, you know, a lesser center than Florence, but it's nonetheless important center for artistic patronage. And also, um, thought, I mean, there's a famous um, project, for example, for city architecture uh, that's meant to honor one of these warlords that you just described, you know, who, who had taken control of the city. But also, I, you know, the other thing to say about Milan, uh, and I, I think, you know, I think we still know too too little about this. I mean, the, the, I can tell you that the historians focus obsessively on Florence, Genoa, and Venice, whereas Milan is clearly the richest, most centralized part of northern Italy. Um, Milan comes quite close to qu- conquering most of northern Italy uh, in the late late 13, early 1400s, and it has uh, some of the most advanced kinds of. Um, some of the most advanced economy and technology available in the day. For example, I'm thinking in particular of its arms industry. I mean, arms uh, then as as now, the, the, the ability to manufacture cutting edge weapons is crucial. And Milan had the, the most important arms industry in Italy. And it's making you know armor, but also muskets and cannons and things like this. So it's a major economic center as well as a major center for power and um, artistic patronage. Uh, there's, there's no doubt about it. So while we're talking about Milan, I think it's important to talk about warfare. Warfare at this time in Italy is essentially privatized and it's dominated by mercenary groups called the condottieri. And this has some very interesting effects. The condottieri are have an incentive to be as cost-efficient and as technologically savvy as possible. They don't have the same incentives as state military. So as a result, there's a few downsides. The downside is that sometimes they're disloyal. Machiavelli rails against this, although many modern military historians say this is a bit of a myth. So sometimes they'll go and they'll work for your other one. And they have an incentive to lobby for perpetual war because if there's no war, then they go broke. So that's kind of the downside. But the upside is that the wars are much smaller. They're not wars that involve like the mass slaughter of civilians like World War II. It's usually two armies will go in the field, dance around, a few people get killed, (laughs) and uh, 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 that's the end of the war. And the other thing is that they also have an incentive to adopt a lot of the new military technologies like gunpowder. And Milan is most well known for having condottieris take over the government at times, and also for being home to the most fearsome condottieris. So tell me a little bit more about who these people are. Yeah, um, these people, um, I mean, so you're right to bring up, you know, Machiavelli and this kind of, I mean, these these condottieri are, you know, military entrepreneurs, basically. They're, they have a bad rap, and I can talk about that in a second. But basically, um, the, they come from like what we think are usually like the lesser nobility, not exclusively, though, from that that kind of uh, demographic, people who um, you know have a, a, a warrior vocation and and in a way um, you know show how incomplete the monopoly of violence that these city states had really really was right that they that they for the nothing like a. a a professional army really exists anywhere except um, Venice, and Venice it only exists for the navy, really. But why does this happen? Well, we have to go back to the Lombard League and the wars that we talked about. Those those participatory democracies uh, made war right up until about 1300. Um, for so for 150 years, primarily made war with militias, citizen militias, right? These same people who are voting in the town councils and all this stuff are the same people who go um, and fight when when you have to fight battles. And 
I think, you know, for reasons that you alluded to, it's, these are not great warriors, these people. These are people who might be shopkeepers or merchants, you know, suddenly, you know, having to, to, to arm themselves. And war is getting more complex, not less complex, as you get into the gunpowder age. And you increasingly, I think, need, you need specialists. And I guess we would say, why don't the states just commission a permanent army to do that? And I'm, you know, I think that that was politically a problematic as well as fiscally problematic. Uh, much easier to hire hire an army for when you needed it, and and then make it and make it somebody else's problem when you don't need it. I have a good analogy for this. Imagine that private armies during this time are like jets. Most people can afford to buy a plane ticket to basically rent a jet, <laughs> you know, but very few people can afford to just have a private jet. So if you think of the economics of scale, it's much cheaper for these republics to just rent an army when you need it than to just have it all around gathering dust during peacetime. It, it, exactly. Have it. Gathering <laughs> dust and maybe manipulating and, you know, getting getting their feet into politics, right? And another thing is that these republics, and even though Milan's not really a republic, the, the, many of the same dynamics apply. People don't want to fight and die. You know, nobody wants to really like go die for their country. Most democracies in the 20th century would abandon conscription for this reason, right. like the US. You know, conscription was one of the major reasons why the Vietnam War was so unpopular. So it's much better. Not only is it more economical, but it's much more just better when you have an electoral society to just hire some dudes to uh, who are some experts to to do the fighting for you. I, I think that's a, a, a great uh, a great point. I, I actually think both of those points are great points. I, um, I, when I, when I'm teaching Machiavelli in class, I often ask my students whether they think the United States has a, a mercenary ar- army or a militia, you know, and 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 meant to just, of course, provocatively get them to think about. The, the place of the military in, in modern society. But, but to go back to the Renaissance, you know, I think the advantages of this are, yes, these economies of scale uh, and relative uh, affordability that you get through this system, as well as the political, um, they're politically more palatable. The danger is, is, is yes, on the one hand, these, these condottieri have an interest in, in constant war, but to be honest, I tell you, I have to say, I think the, the impulse toward war in this period was so constant that I don't know how much blame the, the condottieri really could take. Uh, this was a highly unstable political and geopolitical context. But the other thing is that the problem, I think the real problem, and this, is, this comes out in the career of Francesco Sforza, we'll talk about in a moment. The real problem is that when, when you have a successful condottieri, he could become too big for his britches. Suddenly, suddenly you have... Um, somebody who's nominally under your control, but who's actually the guy who people are, who's popular, who people like, who's winning victories, and who's got a military. And so controlling that that person is difficult. I think we'd have to imagine, um, you know, what it would be like to try to control Amazon or Google if Amazon and Google actually had an army and not just lobbyists working for it. That's a little bit of the the kind of problem you get with these with these military and that's coming. You know, a, a very interesting thing is that the use of military contractors is increasing. As a little bit of an aside, um, I recommend everybody who's interested in this read Eric Prince's autobiography. Eric Prince is the founder of Blackwater, which was the largest military contracting company during the Iraq War. Now, up to half 
of all U.S. military operations are actually done by essentially modern-day condottieri. And Corey, this is going to blow your mind. You know how Eric Prince got the idea of starting Blackwater? Oh, no. not It was from Machiavelli? No. No, it was by studying the condottieri of the Italian Renaissance. Okay. And that's yeah. how he opens. He realized how much more effective the condottieri would be against the non-state actors of Al-Qaeda and, and the guerrilla forces. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? That's, fa- that's fascinating. And it also just you know speaks to the larger concern with relative state weakness, uh, you know, in our in our age and what that might mean in terms of new kinds of institutions or, or organizations, uh, rather than ones just exclusively run by and for the state. And Prince reminds me of Schwarza, who you mentioned, who, if you, you, you probably have seen a painting of him, because he's there with his wife. It, it, this is the right one, right? And he has a very ugly big nose. Why? Because he had the bridge of his nose removed. He lost one of his eyes. So to be able to keep riding in battle, he had his nose bridge removed. And most people would kind of Photoshop, so to speak, the paintings to make people look good. And he's like, no, I want you to paint me how I am. And I want people to know that I'm ugly and this like hard ass. And um, so t- t- tell us a little bit about him. Yeah, he, he is. He is a hard ass. He, he comes, you know, he's the son of another condottiere who had basically been been fighting all across all across Italy but Francesco Sforza he ends up by the time we get into like the 1420s he's ends up basically he's working for the duke of milan against well depending on the moment against venice or against florence he um the, the duke of milan this is the moment actually when venice is really uh, actually kind of winning and is 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 getting control of all these mainland territories on 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 the Italian mainland, and so so the Duke of Milan gets more and more dependent on on Francesco Sforza, and eventually Francesco Sforza, uh, well, so the Duke of Milan has no no heir to the throne; he just has a daughter, and so Sforza figures his um this is his big opportunity, right? So because if he could marry this woman, then um. He could basically make himself the next Duke of Milan. And that's exactly what happens. So you basically have this, this warlord and, you know, uh, who, who is happy to switch sides. I mean, he, he's not like I say he's fighting for the Duke of Milan, but he'll, he'll, he's, he's in constant contact with Venice and, Flor- and Florence throughout this whole period. Uh, he's basically pretty close to Cosimo de' Medici in Florence. Um, so, even, so, so he's trying to use his position really to, to parlay it into, into the duchy. Uh, and he succeeds, and, and, and he founds this kind of dynasty um, that that very much, like you said, ends up producing progressively less competent children who eventually uh, are uh, get blamed for for bringing Spanish and French forces into Italy and kind of ending the ending the Renaissance. Uh, I just want to briefly note we didn't talk about that yet. Uh, the the other thing that's weird about the 14th and 15th century in Italy is how much those 200 years, short 200, you know, more like 100, let's say 175 years, are really dominated by Italian politics. You don't have these outsiders, these Spaniards or French or Germans. It's it's like Italy has been thrown into the it, you know, on onto itself, and it's just fighting itself out um, without these outsiders. Um, that's going to change in 1494 when 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 one of the sports of this guy I'm um, called Ludovico the Moor because he had dark skin. Um, when this guy Ludovico the more calls in French And aid. that's Le- Da Vinci's patron, right? Yes, it's made, exactly. It's Leonardo Da Vinci's p- patron. I was going to essentially summon 
French armies. And that's going to give the start to what we call the Italian Wars, which is, which is in one way, the Italian Wars are going to be the end of the Renaissance. It's like, like we talked about with the sack of Rome in 1527. But in another way, it's also going to be the export of the Italian Renaissance to the rest of Europe. Because suddenly Italy is sort of the center of Europe and it's going to be exporting its, its culture, its personnel. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci ends up himself ends up getting attached to the, the French court and goes and goes to France where he ends up dying. That's why the Mona Lisa is in the Louvre and not somewhere in Italy. And it's sort of the it becomes the end of the Renaissance in Italy, but the export of the Renaissance to Europe. Sorry, so, that's a long way from the condottieri, but <laughs> no, I, I think it's fascinating. Look, I think what's what's very important about the Schwartzes is that. This is not a unique phenomenon with him. There's many other cases of this happening in the early modern and sort of late medieval world. In the Holy Roman Empire, this happens, happens in Netherlands. And in fact, the fact that there's just these like mercenaries who can just overthrow the government and become in charge is one of the major factors that actually leads to sort of state formation. And it's it's at least why um, one of the reasons why Louis XIV was so skeptical of mercenaries. And a few hundred years later, we'll start implementing a lot of the nationalization of the French armies. I think that's that's quite right. I mean, uh, we, we sometimes forget that the Thirty Years' War, which was the Thirty Years' War is fought mo- mo- mostly in Germany, but it's the, it's basically it's the most destructive conflict on European soil until World War I. Immensely destructive, but it's fought by mercenaries, some of whom become so big that the you know, the kings and the emperors start to worry about whether these guys are going to take over. Now, they don't quite, but I think people like Louis XIV are really conscious of this, and they do undergo that kind of nationalization of their armies precisely as a project of state control. And, you know, whether they fight better is only part of their calculation. I think the other part of the calculation was political. It's like, I, it's, not some, it's not so much whether they fight better or worse, as I can at least control them if it's my, if it's my state army. But yeah, they're absolutely common throughout Italy in the 14th and 15th century. Everybody has these, everybody has these condottieri. So before we move on to Venice, um, let's give a few little honorable mentions. It's important to remember that Italy is chock full of city-states. And a lot of these city-states like Pisa, it's very hard to pin down because during part of the period, Pisa is independent. During part of the period, Pisa is part of Florence, etc. Other honorable mentions include Mantua, um, Bologna. Treviso, if you look at, if you consider Ragusa as an Italian city-state, but sort of located <laughs> in modern-day Croatia, I don't know, I don't know if it's fair to count it, but sort of a, a colony, there's that. You can even maybe consider some of the crusader states that were dominated demographically by Italians, perhaps the sort of extensions of, of this Italian culture. So let's let's jump into could, 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 wait Tibo, I, we, before can I do one more honorary mention which is which is Ferrara the town of the city of Ferrara's which is under you know is basically becomes this this major major center of Italian court life and epic poetry so the great epic uh, renaissance epics maybe most famously um Tasso but also Ariosto get out of this court and even the theory of what it was you know what is court life supposed to be, you know, really comes out also of this court in Ferrara. So there's, there's this, you know, we always think about Renaissance in the republics, but we got to remember the Renaissance in the monarchies, Milan, but also Ferrara most, as well. I think that's a very good point because 
it's not just republics and monarchies, but there's the papal states, which is like a theocracy. There's <laughs> so many weird forms of government. There's bishoprics. There's some places that are like communes that have no heads of state. So it's just like a committee that's ruling the place. There's some attempts at creating governments by lottery. It's kind of like this Cambrian explosion of really weird governments that are very short-lived at times. And you can't just say... This makes it very hard to make just blanket statements about the Renaissance, because it's like, as we've seen, are you going to compare Milan? How in the world are you going to compare Milan, Naples and Florence? You know, such different societies. It's almost as if they're completely different universes. No, I, I just think, yeah, the, the diversity, the, the diversity of the Renaissance and it's it's it, I think the analogy to the Cambrian explosion is, is exactly right, right. There's all these weird forms that tend to get forgotten in, in our obsession with Florence, especially. And, you know, it's very important because we have this bias where it turns out that Western liberal democracy kind of wins, you know, and a lot of the historiography is kind of like only looking at these in terms of how are these steps towards Western liberal democracy, right? We're not thinking of them as terms of a lot of these places turn out to be evolutionary dead ends. And the Republic of Florence is much more a step towards, I don't know, the the monarchies of the 1600s (laughs) than it is a step towards Western liberal democracy. And I really think it's important when you hear about these republics, not to think of it as this evolves, not not to look at it from this modernist perspective of like, this is going to evolve into America, but to really look at it for what it is in its own sake. So on that historiographical note, let's look at Venice. We're looking back at the collapse of the Roman Empire. All of these other city-states that we have mentioned have been in the sphere of the Holy Roman Empire at some point and of sort of the successor states, maybe with Naples and Sicily as kind of an exception. But for the most part, these are very much connected to the West. Venice is founded by refugees who are fleeing the barbarian invasions during the collapse of the Roman Empire. And they find this marshland. This marshland has a few patches of mud. At some places, there's some reeds that grow in it. If you go in a boat there, you can still see some of it. A lot of it is only visible during low tide. And right off of the coastline to hide from these barbarians, they start building islands that are artificial. And at first, they only live in these artificial islands during times of war. Whenever there's conflict happening on the mainland, they go out. But over time, instead of constantly evacuating and returning to these artificial islands, they just start living there permanently. And this process of Venice being built starts kind of in the 600s and goes into the 900s. And the Venetian economy is mostly based off of cultivating the only thing they can cultivate, salt, because there's no arable land. However, Venice has some advantages. The cleanest city in the Middle Ages, because you can just poop in the water and the water will wash it away. It doesn't just like rot and fester. So Venice does very well during a lot of the various plagues and disease outbreaks. Venice is this is tied to the Byzantine Empire and is technically part of the Eastern Roman Empire, which is kind of like the Roman rump state based out of modern day Turkey and Greece. And they're not really tied to this Western Holy Roman Emperor. A few of these Holy Roman Emperors, notably Charlemagne himself, camp outside of Venice to try to, you know, extract some money and whatever, but but it never amounts to anything. So unlike the other city-states, which kind of over time break free from the continental powers of Europe, Venice always is independent. So Let's pick up the story of Venice uh, from the Crusades, maybe culminating with the Fourth Crusade. Yeah, um, that that thank thank you. I mean, Venice is absolutely anomalous. I mean, is is it really Italy? Is it really part of the West? 
is it really is really Byzantine? Well, clearly it, it, it's it's in between those two, and it's also I, I want to emphasize as well. It's really close to the Slavic lands, where which is the major source of uh, of slaves uh, in the in the you know basically what we call the Dark Ages before our, our sources become abundant again. So it's it's in this really um, liminal position, this borderland position, and it's definitely able to benefit from that. So it it is. Uh, the same stories about the Holy Roman Emperor and the Pope. There's there's famous examples of of the of Venice essentially trying to broker a meet, you know treaties between them because they're supposedly independent of, of both. Obviously, you could see the Byzantine art or the, the Byzantine legacy in the art of Venice, which is just inescapable. Anyone who's been to um, Venice and seen the the Church of San Marco, but Venice is is trading from a as a side early- note about the the Church of San Marco, Mussolini who had actually only went to Venice relatively late in his life and went to Greece first. And Mussolini hated Venice. He sees it and he's like, what are these Greeks with this Greek architecture? And he actually wanted to blow up Venice to Italianize it, which is sounds so insane. And he actually went about and built these like horrible, disgusting, like concrete plazas everywhere and mowed down all of these ancient medieval buildings to build modern streets. So it's funny how Venice, not only has it stood apart, but the the ultimate embodiment of sort of lowbrow nationalism, Mussolini hated it for that reason, as a as a bit of a side note. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 just it just feels so different from these other Italian cities and probably, you know, and, and has always felt that way to, to people. Um, it's, it's, it's not, I mean, of course, Mussolini had a, an extreme reaction, um, but I think, it, I think it's inescapable. And yet, so, so, so we have to imagine this early Venice, you know, it's, it's actually the very early dates is definitely hundred percent still actually under probably the first few doges were actually uh, Byzantine exarchs or something, but it's in, it's essentially independent. Um, and always thought of itself as independent as part of its kind of political mythology. And it's trading slaves from a pretty early date to the Muslim world at the same time that it's, it becomes, and this is very characteristically Venetian. It's, it's both ideologically incredibly anti-Islamic from an early date at the same time that it does more trade with, with the Muslim world than any other part of, of Europe. And so one, one, one example of, of this, 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 I think illustrates this is that the story that St. Mark, so um, St. Mark is buried in Alexandria, which of course is un, under Muslim rule by, by the Middle Ages. And so Venetians are there doing business, but what else do they do? Well, they steal the relics of St. Mark uh, and they put it supposedly in a vat of um, pig, pig fat you know, so that the, the Muslims wouldn't dig through it. Uh, but they steal these relics in the early, early ninth century and bring them to, to to Venice, and that's where we get Saint Saint Mark, San Marco, from from the, this act. The, the the miracle of Saint Mark's is this amazing. Google the miracle of Saint Mark's. You'll get some accounts of this medieval legend. It's it's by the way, it's probably all just like fanciful, but but it's so much <laughs> exactly. fun because what they what you say about this heist, I totally I totally forgot about. So they they they, they take this the, the body. Saint Mark was born sort of in the region of Venice. 
Of course, Venice didn't exist during the late Roman Empire, so he came from the mainland. But the Venetians claimed him as his because he like allegedly once went camping in the marshes where Venice would later be built. And he traveled to preach to the Eastern Roman Empire. He ends up, he, he travels all over the Middle East. He dies in Alexandria, which is a city in Egypt. And he his body is held there by the Coptic Greeks in the, oh, I think it's, when is, when is it liberate? It's like 830s, 840s, somewhere yeah. along that time. It's really yeah. early in Venetian history. Yeah. Um, it's right when Venice is going from like, permanent settlement trading salt to like starting to do commerce. Uh, Two Venetian merchants arrive in Alexandria. They talk to the Greeks and they decide that they're going to steal the body and bring it back to Venice as this trophy. It's so disgusting to us modern (laughs) people. The idea that you're going to just like parade around this corpse, you know, it's so so weird. But it turned out this is quite common during the time, right? There's all sorts of of like toenails. I'm not joking. Literally toenails, foreskins, ears, hands, fingers of saints that are being circulated around as these precious relics. So the ultimate relic is the whole body of St. Mark. You know, the toenail would be priceless, let alone the whole body. So they bring it back. The problem is that when they're trying to sneak it out of Alexandria, they realize that the body stinks. They, they describe it as having this rosy aroma. <laughs> <laughs> so, and the Greeks, by the way, are not at all cool with this. The Greek Christians are really upset at this at first. So the Venetians placate them by giving them gold and by telling them that St. Mark is from Venice. And they make it sound like it's the telling them St. Mark is from Venice. But if you read through the lines, they just kind of bought the corpse off of them. Corrupt Greek <laughs> Christian priest who had been. And the Muslims, by the way, wanted to foster, you know, the, the preservation of religion in, 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 uh, in, in Egypt. So, so they give the corpse to, to St. Mark. And uh, so, so, so they gave the corpse to the, to the Coptic uh, Greeks of Alexandria. So they hide it under the pork, as you said. And the, the, there's this very tense scene in the legend where the Muslims open the body because they can smell something and they're not sure what it is. And, and I think one of the Muslims, they even put words in his mouth where it's like, ah, oh, it smells like a dead saint here. <laughs> it's just amazing. And, and he opens it and it's like, oh, pork, disgusting. And they and they send it back. It's it's really this, this amazing little little nugget. <laughs> And it, and it's great because it, I think it encapsulates this tension that you see running throughout all of all of Venetian history, right? Are we are we enemies of the of of the Muslims, or are we the basically are we the business partners, right? Are we enemies of the Byzantines, or are we their partners? And and of course, at times they're both. Um, later on uh, in Venetian history, uh, uh, Venice comes to be called the the Turks courtesan, the courtesan of the Turks, because you know. They're effectively right. They're in bed with the Turk because the idea, even though, um, you know, you know, Venice had, all, had fought all these wars against the Ottomans as well. So it's this it's this very ambivalent position um, of the Venetians. But again, as with Genoa and Pisa, it is the the calling of the First World War, uh, First World War, gosh, the First Crusade that is really going to launch Venice on its you grand know, imperial that we- that was not as much of a slip as you think it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it's going to launch Venice on its career as uh, an imperial power. And, you know, where they, where they get these holdings that we mentioned in, in the Levant, they, they're, they're calmer. They start, this is the moment uh, where, and this is going to be true in, in a certain way, it's going to be true until the 20th century, but where commerce in the Mediterranean, the, the shipping is going to be dominated by Europeans, but particularly by Italians, as we talked about earlier. Is Venice an empire at this point? Well, you know, yes and no. Venice owns some territory up in the, up in the um, you know, Adriatic, and it 
it is not above manipulating its neighbors on the Italian mainland. I mean, I think Tibbet mentioned salt. Really, this is a this is a city that from pretty early date wants to make sure that it controls commerce in the upper Adriatic. And in, and if that means having to intervene on the mainland to do that, it will happily do that. But even so, right, you wouldn't most of us wouldn't really call Venice an empire yet. It's not until the Fourth Crusade um which is 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 the this is so um Jerusalem is is lost to the the west of Franks in I think 1087 uh or sorry 1187 and so the third crusade is crawled almost immediately thereafter to try to recapture Jerusalem that's when Frederick Barbarossa we talked about earlier drowns in the ditch but the fourth crusade is called uh around 1203 to for the same reason but this time they're going to go by ship. And how does it, but, but what ends up happening, I don't want to you know, make it a surprise, is, is they, they, these crusaders end up conquering Constantinople instead of Jerusalem. So how does that happen? How does this, how does this, this, this adventure get diverted from Muslims, well, to, to Greek Orthodox? Well, part of this has to do with growing religious difference between the Greek and the Latin churches. Part of it has to do with the complexities of Byzantine politics, um, which is that you know, there was a pretender to the Byzantine throne hanging out in these Frankish circles with Venetians and these Frankish crusaders. And basically, you know, he's saying, if you let me, you know, if you put me back on the, on the throne, then I'll make sure it's really easy for crusaders to go back and forth, um, you know, between Western Europe and the Levant. So there's that part. But then part of it is this issue that, that Thibault mentioned earlier, which is that, you, you know, the, the Franks show up to be carried across to Jerusalem, but they don't have anything like the money they need for the shipping. And so the wily Venetians are basically like, well, if you take, if you, um, you know, help us conquer these places and basically uh, in the Adriatic and then help us restore this, this guy to um, the Byzantine throne, then, um, then we'll carry you all the way to the Holy Land. So that's the bargain that gets made. So they do this and they go to Constantinople and, um, they actually put this fellow on the throne, but it initiates a series of a, a, ca- a political cascade where very quickly it ends up being the Franks and the Venetians fighting actually the Byzantines who do not want, basically who want to reject this whole, this whole proposition. And when, when the Venetians and the Franks win, the Venetians are given, I think it's something like there's some formula. It's like, uh, it's like one quarter and a half of a quarter of the Byzantine Empire to rule directly. What that means is a big segment of Constantinople itself, but also islands throughout the Ionian Sea, throughout the, the Peloponnesus, throughout Greece, basically. Uh, this whole archipelago of empire that the Venetians now have the rights to. Um, and this is really the moment where, where Venice becomes an empire. The best historical analogy for those of you who aren't familiar with the Fourth Crusade, is Star Wars, specifically <laughs> Darth Vader. Why? Because Anakin Skywalker starts off by, by, by killing a few Tusken Raiders, and then before he knows it, he's having an affair with, like, you know, the noble woman, <laughs> and then he's, he, he's, he's training to become a Sith, and then he, he, before he knows it, he has an empire, and it's kind of similar. So the, these, these crusaders go to Venice, they need transportation to go to Jerusalem to fight the Muslims. The Venetians are like, oh, you can't pay for it, don't worry, all you got to do is 
you know, take care of a few pirates that are that are messing with us in the Adriatic Sea. <laughs> the problem, of course, is that the pirates are are, are, are Catholics. It's the kingdom. Of, it's Zara, right? It's Zara. Yes. Yeah. So they, they go attack this city-state, this kind of a, a crappy little Slavic city, uh, piracy-based city-state of the Adriatic, and they all get excommunicated for this. The, the Pope Boniface is, is enraged. So they decide to proceed, but then the Crusaders have this idea, and they say, by the way, we're actually not going to, to Israel slash Jerusalem. We're actually going to go um, attack via Egypt, but our men will hate that, so we're not going to tell them. So they go to Egypt, they look at the coastline, and they realize that it's way too defended. And they think to themselves, oh, crap, the Venetians say, hey, this expedition has been going on way too long. You owe us even more money now. There's this pretender. Once again, why would a Byzantine, you know, deposed Byzantine pretender be in Venice? Well, because Venice is sort of de jure, but not de facto part of the Byzantine Empire. So because it's on paper part of the Byzantine Empire, but the Byzantines have no control. It's the perfect place for a Byzantine pretender to hang out. They 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 place the pretender. The pretender turns out to be a moron, and there's a bit of <laughs> there's a bit of power shuffling in Constantinople. And as a result, the guy the the guy who takes charge who come who who comes to power in Constantinople is this like anti Byzantine populist kind of guy. And yeah. this at first. They're trying to negotiate, but during the negotiations, there's a few incidents, there's different versions of it. The Byzantine version of it, which is the most damning version, is that the Crusaders rape some girls, which leads to some mass riots, which leads to fighting on the streets. And before they know it, you know, one, two, three, I just sacked Constantinople, give your empire to me, you know? And that's um, so the Venetians end up with all of these random territories. Plus, on top of that, They've been slowly buying up chunks of the Middle East from the area that's seized by the Crusaders. And on top of that, there's some manipulations or some strange sort of complicated geopolitical stuff that's happening in Italy. So the Venetians have a good chunk of the former Byzantine Empire. They control, at, at certain times, they control Athens, they control Crete, they control the island of Naxos, they control Corfu in Greece, they control some parts of Anatolia. They end up with some Frankish emperors who are the emperors of the Byzantine Empire, are very friendly to them. They end up with all sorts of colonies in the Black Sea. And they even purchase, not only purchasing land from the Crusaders in the Middle East, but also purchasing lands from Muslims, with the most distant outpost being in Basra in the late 1290s, which is quite fascinating. So the Venetians have this maritime sort of commercial trade empire. What what happens after this? Well, it, it it's... Um... In the very long run, what's going to happen is the, the, the rise of the Ottoman Empire is going to constitute a, you know, a gradual but kind of fundamentally existential threat to this, to this, this empire. You know, because as the Ottomans, as the Ottomans conquer, conquer, they're going to incorporate these imperial exclaves, I guess, into, their, into the empire itself. Um, but in the short run, this is going to make Venice into the preeminent broker between east and west when it comes to commerce. And so again there's like a you know a reason why a figure like like someone like Marco Polo is a Venetian who's eventually going to you know going to be trading all across Eurasia as as everyone knows but but if you read the early chapters in Marco Polo he's he's basically in this Byzantine world in the Levant and the Black Sea region right this by then by this point Constantinople's back in Greek hands so that's a blow to Venice but but nevertheless right you can see this kind of these island these almost venetian islands in the middle east 
become places where these spices, uh, silks, other luxury goods get ultimately conveyed to Venice. Uh, I think the other interesting thing is this. So, so, you know, I think the is how the Venetians tried to manage this because part of what they had to do was to keep other Europeans from enjoying the benefits of this. So the way they did that, they fought wars that I mentioned with Genoa to sort of really um, to establish themselves as um, preeminent in the in the Eastern Mediterranean and in, in the Levant. They also allied themselves with um, the Mamluk sultans of Cairo uh, to basically um, exclude other Europeans. To kind of saying like say, to make themselves the exclusive buyers of this of these spices that come over the Indian Ocean and over overland, you know, over Sinai up to up to Cairo. And they finally, they try to make sure that anyone who wants to do business with them in Europe has to come to Venice. You can't go, if you're a European, especially a German, you're not supposed to go all the way to the Levant. You're going to go to Venice and you don't go any further. So they make Venice itself into this huge entrepot for all these commodities that are coming from the East that are going to eventually be distributed all throughout Europe. But where's that point happen? That point happens in Venice itself. One very interesting aspect of this is that Venice starts developing, like Florence and like Genoa, very advanced commercial systems. Once again, I mentioned this earlier, but some people, whether the Western invention, there's actually an independent Islamic invention of double entry bookkeeping appears in Europe. It's either Florence or Venice, right? So that's very illustrative. Either way, it's an early adopter. Another interesting thing, and I'm getting this from Lawrence Bergreen, who wrote a biography of Marco Polo about 15 years ago. Um, one of the most, and I have, so I have no clue how accurate this is. This is all, you know, tertiary <laughs> sciences. But one of the most fascinating things about, about Marco Polo is that when he comes back, he is briefly imprisoned for like a couple of years in kind of a luxury prison uh, by the Genoese, the, the, the rivals of the Venetians, where he writes his famous book. But his life after, he, he's an adventurer. He lives another 20 or 30 years, something like that. And what he becomes is one of the world's first foreign direct investment consultants, which <laughs> is an industry nowadays that I'm very intimately familiar with. And what the business is, interestingly enough, is that he helps Venetians, using the, all the contacts he made out east, find the best deal on taxes in ports uh, <laughs> when they're doing business with all of these groups, I guess his life would have been what late late 1200s. So yeah. this probably intersects with uh, the Mamluks, and it definitely coincides with you know the time when the Venetians are losing a little bit of their hold on Greece. So it's uh, it's very interesting to think of the, the 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 financial instruments that are developing in Venice around this time, and how even Marco Polo, you, you always think of him as the adventurer, not the not the banker. The so t t tell us a little bit about finance in, in Venice. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I think that, that I mean, broadly speaking, um, I think the techniques were very similar to, to what we see in Florence. I would say the biggest difference that occurs to me or the most famous difference would be better, a better way to put it, is the way that you, that the, that the galley system, the shipping that is connecting Venice to the east is effectively a state-run enterprise. So Venice is a very corporate corporatist kind of society. I'll talk about that in a moment, but but basically it is the government itself that's going to, you know, essentially license these ships to private entrepreneurs who are going to be the, the merchants who are going to um, rent space aboard these ships. And these these spaces could be could be extremely subdivided so that you know a, a relatively middling kinds of investors 
could invest in an enterprise space aboard these ships. Um, at the same time, that big merchants would have 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 much more much more space. Um, could I comment and, briefly on how the investment is handled? Sure. Yeah. At, at first, what it is is that you can buy stock in a ship, and it's this very high risk, high return venture. The 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 problem is that. If your ship sinks, you lose everything. So as is independently invented later on in the Netherlands, they start this idea, which is once again, very similar to private equity, where you buy one fifth of a ship and you buy stock in that and that distributes the, it reduces the profits, right? So you're not going to 10x your money, but it reduces the risk. So now you can own wealth by owning stock in a whole bunch of these shipping expeditions that are going east. And um, you also get the rise of things such as naval insurance and um, a lot, all sorts of institutions like that appear out of that. So just yeah, sort of I, 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 I think that's a great that's a great point. I mean, I think a whole entree into thinking about this world of, of, of Renaissance capitalism is, is really thinking about all the ways in which people tried to attenuate risk, to mitigate risk. You know, the other another common way that you see and you see this certainly in these Venetian merchants is is not only the way they tried to um, spread their shares out over different ships, especially if you're a rich merchant, but also just the sheer diversity of goods that, in which they invested. So that so that you know nobody really in this day is 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 invest is is specifically a kind of silk merchant or specifically a pepper merchant. But these are all generalists who are investing in like a, a, a an array of, of of different goods, partly um, partly to hedge against uh, market fluctuations. Another way we see this too is is the use of of of, of family family relations. I mean, um, so the the twelfth century is largely an age of um, resident traveling merchants. So you you yourself are traveling um, with your goods in many cases. But over the course of that and the following century, you get these uh, agency relations where you sent you're a, a principal merchant, you're the rich guy back in Venice, and you have an agent in you know. Um, I don't know, Damascus or Constantinople. And this is risky. How do you know that this agent's not going to just, you know, lie to you and, and take your property? Well, this is one reason why you tend to rely on family members who who uh, owe you other things besides just this business relation. So this is a major problem for the for the Venetians and for the Florentines. But but in both cases, they're kind of the, the problems resolved by these sorts of family firms, um, but not exclusively families. I mean, you would you, you had partners who were also just acquaintances as well who would do this. There were these con- these these early um, partnership uh, relationships develop as well in this period. With Islamic, uh, there's some Islamic uh, uh, analogs to that as well, I should say. So many modern libertarians falsely believe that Venice is sort of this ultra-capitalist, ultra-libertarian utopia. When in fact, most scholars make the point that Venice was, if not the most authoritarian, maybe contested with Milan, then one of the most authoritarian uh, police states of, of Renaissance Italy. And one historian went as far as calling it the North Korea of Renaissance Italy. And I don't know if I'd go that far, but it really it really stuck with me. So so tell me a little bit about, about Venice's governance. Yeah, um, it's it's a uh, it's a good question. So Venice's governance, like actually all of these republics, uh, is, is to begin with, um, is is incredibly complex. Uh, I'm going to just read you uh, just to, to illustrate um, how um, how the so the Venice was ruled uh, nominally by the Doge, which is just the Venetian word for for Duke, and 
these doges, um, increasingly, especially by the time we get to the 14th century, they are like um, head of state, but they they're only but they don't they don't determine policy, which is largely determined within um, the, the the Council of Forty and this other body that I'm going to be talking about called the Council of Ten, which is the the, the, the police state element that, that Thibault was mentioning. Um, but but you know, recall that I said um, you know how in the in the in the 1300s and the 1400s, right? There's all of these um, big men that are setting themselves up as as leaders over cities, and and what the Venetians wanted to do was make sure that never happened in Venice itself. And so I'm just going to read you how the electoral process here worked. So the Great Council, this is cho- uh, the Great Council chose 30 of their number, 30 Great Councilmen, then reduced that 30 to lot by nine. These nine would then vote for 40, who were reduced to 12 who in turn would vote for 25, who were reduced by law again to nine, who voted for 45, who were reduced to 11. And it was those 11 who finally voted for 41. And it was these 41 members, so painstakingly um, chosen by the great council, who finally voted for the doge. So there's like seven different little elections just to elect the people who are going to elect the doge. And this was this deep desire to kind of randomize participation, not just at the level of doge, but at all of the, really in all of the main government bodies in, in Venice um, as a way to, to prevent any particular family from monopolizing power. And there are many other aspects of this. Um, but, and this was, this was effective. I have to say, Venice remains the most functional republic of anyone uh, on the Italian peninsula, really right up until Napoleon puts it, puts it to an end. But at the same to- by the same token, um, and this is sometimes called the myth of Venice, uh, is a pretty famous phrase. This myth of Venice is, is, is absolutely central to political theory in the 16th, 17th, and even in the 18th century. Because you got to remember, nowhere else in Europe is power transferred as regularly as 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 automatically as in Venice itself, and so people were really envious of that. But at the same token, there was this kind of dark side to it, and that's the the Council of Ten, uh, which actually involved more than more than ten people. But this Council of Ten is set up in the early 14th century um, after somebody, um, some Doge, is sort of accused of taking too much power, and. This Council of Ten can effectively, uh, by the time you get to the 15th, the late 15th and the 16th centuries, uh, can effectively execute without judicial process anybody that it deems a threat to the Republic. So, for example, there's a a famous conspiracy um, in the 1620s called the Spanish Conspiracy, where supposedly these these Spanish affiliates are going to try to take control of the government. Who knows? How how reason how real this conspiracy was, but in any case, a number of people just mysteriously died and get you know get get hung up, appear in the morning in the gallows. The other victim of this, so there's these political threats, and the Council of Ten acts with the utmost swiftness, but also without judicial process, to suppress these political threats. And in the 16th century, there's also um, the threat of heresy. And again, the Council of Ten, in some cases, would act to to suppress heresy. Uh, where in other contexts, that would be really church bodies that were involved in doing that. So um, part of their apparatus, there were these anonymous denunciation boxes. Basically, they would have these like lion's heads and you would you would slip in a denunciation uh, of somebody who you thought was a threat to the republic into one of these one of these mouth, one of these lion's mouths 
And then the council of 10 would, would get it and, and it would investigate. I don't want to say that they did these things like automatically. It's not like a witch hunt, but it did happen with secrecy and kind of without judicial process. Venice, paradoxically, at the same time as it's kind of this, this environment where there's this surveillance state with these denunciation boxes with the, the famous lion's head, is also an incredibly multicultural state. And there's a very large Muslim population that is usually tied later on in the history to the Mamluks and the Ottoman trading partners of the Venetians. And there also is a very large Jewish population. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, the, the, of course, Shakespeare has this very famous play, The Merchant of Venice, which is why, you know, a lot of the, the, the Venetian Jews have entered the popular consciousness. Can you speak a little bit to Venice's multiculturalism? Yeah. Um, and, and this is a huge part of, I mean, so, I mean, I mean, so this is part of more, maybe I'd say the more positive aspects of, of its, of its history is you have, as you get in, as you get into the 16th century, you know, you have sizable thousands of, of Jews living in Venice, also hundreds probably of Ottoman uh, many of these would, some of these would be Turkish. Many of them would have been Greek Ottomans. So, you know, Orthodox Ottomans, uh, Armenians, you have an Armenian population and you also have uh, Protestants. You have German Protestants, you have English Protestants famously. So you have this, um, this melting pot and well, melting pot's not the right word because, because these groups, their interaction was pretty structured. I, 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 I think that Religious boundaries were were policed in Venice. Um, you know, good. The, you know, yes, you want these people here for trading purposes. You want to do business with them. You want to to treat them, in some cases, like like political equals. At the same time, that you don't want your population to become Protestant, let alone Muslim or something, right? So there and, are and and the the the, the Jews, for example, are, are confined to this old brick factory called the <laughs> the ghetto. And yes. um, but of course, paradoxically. You think of the ghetto, well, nowadays you think of like the Holocaust and the Warsaw ghetto, but that's not at all what the ghetto was. The Jews were very happy because elsewhere, although in Venice they were confined to the ghetto, elsewhere in Europe they're getting, you know, genocided much more regularly. And at least in the ghetto, they can own property, they're safe. There's a lot of very wealthy Jew, some of the wealthiest citizens of Venice. So yes, the Jews are confined to the ghetto. But once again, you really have to, you know, contextualize it in the context that it's this very brutal world that they that they live in. But I think that the ghetto kind of illustrates both the paradox of the fact that it's this very tolerant society, but at the where, where you know Jews can escape persecution and own property. But at the same time, it's kind of this police state where at night they're they're locked into this place and there's there's Christians watching over them. I mean, I think that's just that's just quite right, right? This is not a liberal order where everyone is is thought to be equal, where everyone ought to have free speech, et cetera. This is a world in which, you know, it was thought that the unity and continuity of the state depended on maintaining order at all levels, order about who can say what, order about where the Jews and the Muslims and the Protestants had to reside. But this still, within this pretty... Um, I don't know, firm structure, I guess, there was still room for interesting contact. For example, Christians who wanted to learn Hebrew could be taught by one of the rabbis in the ghetto. And this is, you know, we know that people did this. So there were contacts within this structure. Uh, there were artistic exchanges. Uh, there's a whole undercurrent of the ways in which various art and architectural details in Venice in the 15th and 16th and 17th centuries are deliberately modeled on, say, Islam Islamic uh, arts. So you can see that 
even within this kind of structure, which was tightly policed, uh, there were moments of contact and exchange. So one last thing, we're going to move on to the end of Venice, but there's one last fascinating aspect of Venetian civilization. The Venetians' invention of mass production at the arsenal. Um, Henry Ford, interestingly enough, just as you know, Eric Prince was inspired by the Condottieri, Henry Ford himself was inspired by the Venetian arsenal, which is quite interesting. So tell me about, uh, I also find it funny that there's so many American, like, pioneers of capitalism that are inspired by Renaissance-era Venice. So what is the arsenal? And uh, tell us about it. Yeah, the arsenal is, is as, you, as you alluded to, it's, it's, it's the hands down the biggest industrial enterprise in pre-industrial Europe. And it's this place where um, the ships, the state-owned ships that I mentioned, are manufactured in a, a highly systematic way um, with a division of labor uh, you know, between not just skilled and unskilled, but various kinds of skilled laborers. Ships um, should remember that that shipbuilding, along with something like cannon founding, this is one of the advanced technologies of the day. Um, and this is this vast area in Venice. You could even, I mean, it's so big you can pretty pretty much see it on any of these these early maps, and you could visit it today. And this is the place where these things get made. Uh, they could get made very quickly. There's reports of uh, um, a, a, an entire ship being constructed in one day. I mean, there's just nothing else like that really in pre-modern Europe. And, and, and the Venice, way they pulled off the, the, the ships being constructed in one day is similar to the way Henry Ford pulled off the cars. The parts were prefabricated, so they wouldn't like build a ship part by part. They would build like a hundred masts, you know, 10,000 oars. They'd kind of like build things in batches and, 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 and whip them together, which is it, it, really it, it, modern. It, 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 Exactly. I mean, you you know, Adam Smith, you know, starts the wealth of nations with this famous example of the pin factory, but he, he could have just as well if he had wanted to started with the arsenal in, in Venice, because it's it's the same kind of example of, of the power of batch production, the power of, of divided labor within one enterprise. Uh, and, and Venice is also involved in other of these advanced tech. The other big advanced technology of this day was the printing press. And, and we haven't mentioned this, but it is worth noting um, that Venice is the center of printing in Italy pretty quickly after the invention of the printing press in, around 1450 in Germany. But Italy, but, but Venice becomes one of those great centers. And I think one of the other positive aspects of this of this society is you couldn't say anything you wanted in print. By no means is this like a, a total free for all. But there was nowhere else in Italy, especially after the Counter Reformation gets underway, where you could talk so freely in print as in Venice. Venice had the freest press in, in Italy and, and one of the freest presses in Europe. And so this makes it, it is, makes it both a center of information as well as this additional industry. The other industry that Venice is quite well known for is uh, the glass production on the island of Murano, right outside of Venice, where like the arsenal, although the arsenal is run by the government, right? Because the government controls shipping and is for sort of the strength of the state. The other thing that they mass produce is glass trinkets that they yes. sell and export. But I think the arsenal is a great way to end sort of the, 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 the golden age of Venice because in many ways, Venice starts getting involved in these increasingly violent and large-scale confrontations uh, against the Ottomans and other groups. My favorite paintings 
are of the Battle of Lepanto, where the Venetians, you know, build this massive fleet. And there's so many great paintings of the Battle of Lepanto. It's it's really epic, unlike any other art that comes from this period, in, in, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, and and the, the Venetian, the Ottomans, who are this massive empire, you know, Goliath has this huge fleet. The Venetians, allied with the Holy Roman Empire, fight to defend their their holdings that they still have in the in the Greek area that are kind of enclaves against Ottoman. And it's outside of the Greek area of Lepanto, which I, I believe was an Ottoman naval base. I, I, am I right about that? Uh, I I don't know. I mean, I think it. Uh, I don't think it was in this state. I'm I'm not. Um... I'm not actually sure. I'm not sure, but it was some strategically important point controlled by the Ottomans. It wasn't one of these uh, these Venetian outposts. That that's sort of the, the the key thing. And there's this epic naval battle, and um, that's kind of illustrates the power of the arsenal. How little Venice can stand up to the big Ottomans because of their mass production. Yeah, it was it was an. I mean, it had been. Um, so so yeah, I, I had forgotten. It was really not better known. Lepanto uh, as as a town is better known as. As now Pactos, it had been uh, the, the Venetian had had a, a little fortress there in the past. The Ottomans had had taken over that fortress. So it was a it was a center of of Ottoman power, a small center of Ottoman power that had once been in in Venetian hands. So eventually, times change. The Italian Renaissance comes to an end. One by one, the autonomy of the Italian city states falls. Uh, Aragon, the Spanish kingdom, takes over the kingdom of Naples, and at the same time. The exciting trade to be done stops being with the Middle East. It starts being with the New World. And for reasons basically outside of Venice's control, as well as some, some maybe some reasons of internal decline, Venice stops being this hub of, of international trade and finance. And instead, it goes to places like France, England, Spain, Portugal, and the Netherlands. Now, what Venice does is that it reinvents itself in the 16 and 1700s into pretty much the existence that it's had ever since then as a tourism, a center for tourism. And many of the early tourists are English tourists arriving in the in the 1600s. Can you speak a little bit about um, one, one horrifying statistic about, about Venice during, during sort of the beginning of its touristic period is that as many as uh, 10% of its population were prostitutes. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about Venice and sort of the the birth of the tourism industry? Yeah. Uh, I I just want to say I just want to push back a little on predating and decline. The other thing that happens that is not tourism that I think is important is that Venetian manufacturing, not just in Venice but in its territory, uh, the you know the modern Veneto region, uh, Venetian manufacturing and agricultural product productivity grows even in this into the 17th and 18th centuries. And it's one so. It's it's no longer the center. There's no question about it. It's no longer the center of, of trade that it had been, you know, let's say, you know, in the late Middle Ages or early Renaissance. But it's it participates, I think, more fully than people think in this kind of growth of the of the European economy that is especially that 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 manufacturing agricultural economy. But you're right, though, in a basic level, as we move into the 17th century, um, Venice increasingly becomes neutral. In European conflicts and tries to maintain its neutrality, it's 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 no longer really. I mean, there's exceptions, but it's 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 empire is very small now. It's really gone, um, and it becomes this great center for for tourism. Um, really, I think the heyday of that's the 18th and 19th centuries. But but I think you see it already 
in, in, in really the very late 16th and early 17th centuries, especially with the English. And I think the English choose Venice kind of as a base, I think for just a basic political reason, which is that Venice, A, is relatively independent, and B, it's relatively tolerant of Protestants. There's nowhere, I mean, it, it's, it's, I mean, so tolerant of Protestants that some of these early English ambassadors and visitors keep talking and they keep fantasizing about the idea that Venice itself is going to just convert to Protestantism, which of course is not is not crazy because that's what some of the free towns of Germany had done. That's what some of the, the Swiss towns had done, right? So there's this expectation that maybe, you know, Venice is going to fall asleep one day Catholic and wake up Protestant the next day. That never happens, but it is a very tolerant place for English Protestants and, and, and becomes a place where Englishmen and then later, I think Westerners more generally can begin to enter into the Italian Renaissance. They could collect paintings, you know, collect the art, collect the literature and so forth. So before we put an end to this podcast, I actually want to talk about one last bit of research. And I, I hope we can have another podcast in the next, I don't know, six months about this, where we just focus on this topic. But let's just give a little bit of a teaser into the, <laughs> your, your research into free ports in the Italian Renaissance. I kind of think that a few months from now, we should kind of make a part two of this podcast where we just go into detail about the history of free ports from the Renaissance onward. But what's going on with free ports? Well, and, that, and that's the other side. I mean, so to connect this, I think, to, to what we were saying. So we've talked a lot about toleration, how important religious toleration becomes for the, for the um, you know, ongoing commercial prosperity as we, and that gets only more important as we go after in the, in the era of the reformation um, as well as the era in which let's be honest, Spain is relentlessly persecuting Jews. So on the one hand, attracting Jews and the other hand, attracting Protestants to Italy becomes an important way for commercial uh, connections to work. And, and the other side of this is also something you mentioned. So the, the, if the center of the, economy is sort of moving away from the Eastern Mediterranean, well, that's also an opportunity for the Western Mediterranean. And that's the opportunity that's also going to be taken by the port of Livorno, which is to, to make itself this exceptionally tolerant and exceptionally tax-friendly port that's going to enable Tuscany in the first order, but ultimately all of, all of North Central Italy to connect itself into the developing Atlantic economy, to connect itself to Amsterdam and London and beyond that to the Americas and the East Indies. Well, thank you very much for, uh, for, for doing this podcast with us, especially because it's so lengthy. But you know what? I think that having these very long discussions about history, because to really get into any depth in history, you can't just do it in 10 minute video clips, right? <laughs> and I think that for people who really want to sort of get a teaser as to what's happening, you, you really need to have the, these long form podcasts. So I really would like to thank you for, uh, for accepting to do this interview today. Yeah. And thank you for, for being such a gracious uh, host and that's such, such a well-read host as well. It's, cool. it's been a real pleasure. Well, thank you. I have one question. Where can our uh, listeners find your work? Well, they can, they can find my work, um, <laughs> an Amazon search with my name, but also they, they should feel free to, to email me. Um, and I'm sure you could, should post my email, but it's, it's just, um, uh, the, you know, ctazera at scriptscollege.edu. And, you know, any, any questions or follow-up from, from anything I, I discussed today, I, I'd be happy to chat. 
All right. Well, uh, thank you very much. And we'll uh, include the, the, the link to your university page. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. We love engaging with our listeners, so please always feel free to reach out. Contact information is listed in the show notes. To find out more about the work of the Charter Cities Institute, please follow us on social media or visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. <laughs>